I'm not going to listen to this. Wait, you're chanting. I'm not going to Wait. hear this now. Satire, the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices, particularly in the context of contemporary politics and other topical issues. The Pink Smoke presents the Pure Cinema Podcast. Hello. How's it going, Brian? It's going good. Why don't we introduce the uh, voice that uh, folks got the definition of satire from? <laughs> Who had to read it for all of our sakes, so we knew what the hell we're discussing today. Uh, we have the great Adam Rifkin in person today. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having uh, me. You only have two films at the box office right now, <laughs> so we figured now might be a, uh, an apt time to have you on. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, Adam, director of uh, such films, many films, but certain things like Detroit Rock City and uh, Dark Backward was on my... That's actually come up on the show. Multiple oh, films. really? Yeah, yeah uh-huh. we did a 90s cult episode episode and uh that was one of my picks oh great i'm a big fan i'm a big fan. bless you sir oh bless it's good, you it's good stuff man and i love that you're wearing the uh the blumps industries hat that's <laughs> awesome wish folks could see that that's great and uh screenplays uh such a satirical screenplays like small soldiers not just a comedy but also a satire small soldiers definitely is yep. a satire yeah. i think part of today's episode is us slowly defining and chipping <laughs> away <laughs> i mean i i guess even uh, is there a difference between spoof and satire in your mind i think there's a big difference yeah 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 but you know there there's a it can be a blurry line Mm -hmm. but i think there is a difference it almost seems like the acting styles and kind of the grounding of the film for it to be satire you have to kind of believe in the world even if it's heightened sure but a spoof seems to go all the way sketch very sketch very broad yeah but then there are many uh spoof films that are topical and are satirical but i think i think there is a difference fundamentally between satire and spoof yeah which we will uh, blindly stab at throughout the episode. Uh, but up top, let's, I mean, you have two films out right now. Uh, our friend Rob G, who we do Shockways with, is obviously repping one of the films, and so that timed perfectly. But I was also reduced to tears for the other film at a film festival recently, and, I, and that <laughs> doesn't happen You're very too often. Kind. <laughs> uh, and about a topic we all love. So let's talk about Last Movie Star and Director's Cut, two, two wildly different movies. I mean, I, I, I don't think to. there could be two more different <laughs> movies. I think you're right. I, uh, I felt a little schizophrenic making both those movies around the same time. But both have elements of satire, and I, I like. I think it's one is completely obvious how it's satirical, yeah. and I think the last movie star isn't isn't pure satire. It's also a love letter to an amazing actor. But throughout, and I think this just comes through in all your work. You're also, to me, satirizing film festival culture, uh, you know, star culture. What happens to people sure, who sure. are forgotten? I couldn't help myself. A little bit. It's it, it seeps in a little bit. Yeah. So uh, let's start with the last movie because I know uh, you just got to see it this weekend as well. Got to show you this. What do you think? You're being honored. You will be presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award. So what? You told him I was his 24-7 driving slave for the entire weekend. Look who the previous winners are. Robert De Niro, Jack Nicholson, and Clint Eastwood. Oh, what? Hi. Mr. Edwards. Yeah. You should see this rat hole. You're there already. Just enjoy it. What the hell is this? This is the festival. Welcome to Nashville. Oh, my gosh. Mr. Edwards, I can't tell you how excited we are to have you here. How are you? Thank you for coming to the film festival. Let's get you over to the red carpet. 
Because Clinton, Jack, and Bobby Darrell all won. You are the only one stupid enough to show up. There are things I've done. Where's Vic? He left. Vic! Sloshed. Yell bang. Bang. Oh, oh my God! I'm tired of feeling like a has-been. The number one box office star for five years in a row. Six. Six, I'm sorry. Better choices. Take the next exit. That takes a different road. Where are you guys? <laughs> He's on some weird memory tour or something. My God, here you are. I can't believe it. <laughs> Is it true that you doubled Burt Lancaster? I did double somebody on that picture. I had to fall off a horse in a dress. <laughs> That's why you took to An audience will forgive a shitty act too if you can wow them in act three. Uh, let's just talk about at, at the starting point. How did you get Bert? And we've been talking about doing a Bert episode forever. So I would also be interested in your favorite Bert Bert movies. Oh, but, I'd be happy to tell you. But um, how how did you like? Where'd the idea for something that is so specific come from? Because if you don't get Bert Reynolds, this movie doesn't happen. Right. Well, when I was a kid uh, growing up in Chicago, my hero was Bert Reynolds. I, I, I grew up loving monster movies first. That was my first love of movies. But when I saw Smokey and the Bandit and I saw Burt Reynolds, I just thought he was the coolest, funniest guy. I thought, there's a guy I want to hang out with. And he was the biggest movie star in the world. I mean, when I say to, this to people who didn't grow up at the time uh, uh, with him as mm. the number one movie star, it's hard for them to put it in context because there are no movie stars today as big, by far, as big as Burt Reynolds was then. Mm. He was larger than life. And that actually, I think, his persona, his movie star persona, overshadowed his brilliance as an actor to his detriment because he was so good at being a movie star that people didn't even notice that he was a brilliant actor. And I always thought throughout the years that he got shortchanged in terms of his perception as an actor because if you look at performances from movies like Deliverance or The Longest Yard, they're they're brilliant. Many other films too, they're brilliant. Uh, White Lightning is another one that where, and where I see his performance and charisma. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But, I mean, when you think of Burt, you think of the persona, Burt Reynolds, you know, mm. this, this swaggery bandit, you know. So as the years unfolded and I started making movies of my own, I always maintained a love of Burt Reynolds. And I thought to myself, not too terribly long ago, you know, Burt still got it. You don't lose that thing that made you a huge movie star just because you're in your 80s. And nobody's at the moment creating a great role for Burt, you know, right now. Mm. So I thought to myself, I'm going to roll the dice and I'm going to create a role for Bert that I think he's going to want to sink his teeth into. So I wrote the last movie star without knowing him. With no connection, direct no conne connection to no him. No connection wow. to him whatsoever. Wow. That's I just, really ballsy. I just took yeah. a shot and I just thought it was worth it. I can write relatively quickly and I thought I'm going to just write the script fast and if he doesn't want to do it, it was a worthwhile exercise. So I contacted his manager and I said to his manager, listen, I wrote this movie for Bert, my hero, and if Bert doesn't want to do it, I'm not making this movie, but please send it along to him. And if he likes it, I'd love to discuss it with him. And he said, listen, I'll, I'll send it to him, but... Um, uh, I can't promise you what he's going to say. I mean, Bert does what Bert wants to do. I said, oh, and just to make it a little more appealing, it's not set up yet. We don't have it funded. <laughs> <laughs> he sent it to Bert. And is that surprising? that, he, or, or he knew who you were? Like, what, what do you think? Because I'm sure they get other requests. He did like, know who I was, uh -huh, and he did know that, helps, that I had yeah. made some actual films, so right. that helped. Yeah. But it's not like I am Quentin Tarantino, where anything I decide I'm going to make next gets funded. You know, it's always hard to get a movie made. Right. 
Uh, but Quentin just sits around waiting for you to make movies to copy your casting. Uh, <laughs> everyone, everyone knows that. It's no one stuff. Right well, there. obviously. <laughs> but anyway, I, I uh, he sent it to Bert, and uh, I thought, okay, well, hopefully I'll hear back something at some point. And the next day, I got a call from Bert Reynolds. Whoa. <laughs> which, and listen, I got to tell you, I mean, I've been doing this for a while, and I don't get starstruck. Yeah. I mean, I, I've met famous people. I've worked with famous people, and they're just people. But when I recognized Bert's voice immediately when he said, I'm looking for Adam Rifkin. Oh, my God. And I knew it was, I, I knew immediately it was Bert Reynolds. I got completely starstruck. Mm. My hands started getting sweaty. I, my ears started getting hot. You know, I mean, yeah. I just couldn't control myself. And he was so cool on the phone and so gracious. And he started to say that um, he, he said that this movie would be a movie that would be really tough for him to face what it's about because it's very much about a character like himself. The movie's about an old man who used to be a famous movie star and now has to realize that his glory days are in the rearview mirror. And so as he's saying, you know, this is stuff, this is a tough character for me to want to face and deal with and I you know I, I thought to myself he's setting me up in a very nice way to pass mm. and I'm thinking to myself but how cool is it that yeah, Burt yeah. Reynolds <laughs> called me personally, personally yeah. to pass I thought yeah. what a gentleman yeah. that he's actually taking the time to not only having not only have read the script but to call me personally to tell me thank you but this is maybe a little bit too close to home for him yeah, too and, much of a mirror yeah, yeah. and I almost missed it when he said I'll do it because <laughs> I was just lost in my own <laughs> thoughts right. yeah. But he said, he, he said, he said, if you had sent this to me 10 years earlier, I couldn't have faced what it was about. But he said, at this stage in my life, I have to do it. I'm in. Wow. Uh, and uh, I was ecstatic. Now, I naively thought, and you'd think after doing this for 30 years now, that maybe uh, I'd be a little more realistic or a little more cynical about how the process works. But yeah. no, I thought... <laughs> yeah. Burt Reynolds attached to this role in this film, not looking for very much money. I'm gonna. It's gonna be a bidding war. I'm gonna be able to get this movie funded by Monday. Yeah. <laughs> Took seven years to get oh, the money. Oh yeah. God. Seven. Oh, years. from the moment he. From the moment oh, he so said he yes, he lost all those years too. That's right. Oh, wow. Took seven years, and it almost got funded and fell through multiple uh -huh. times throughout those years. And every time I had to call him up and I had to say to him, because multiple different oh. times, there was one time we were all gearing up to go to Canada. We we're going to shoot it in Vancouver. And then another time hmm. we were all gearing up to go to Atlanta. We were going to do it this time. You know, we we're going to shoot. Anyway, every time I had to call him up and I had to say, Bert, I'm so sorry. I'm so embarrassed. The money fell through. And every time I thought he was going to say, kid, we gave it our best shot. You mm -hmm. know, good luck. Uh, you know, uh, I'm mm -hmm. sure Jimmy Conn's available. You know what I mean? <laughs> but he didn't. Every time he said, don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. You're going to find the money. And when you do, just tell me where to show up. Wow. And he held true to his word. Uh -huh. And we finally got the money and we, we made it in, uh, we shot it in Tennessee. And he showed up and gave it his all and gave what I believe is a beautiful performance. Um, and he's a great guy. No, it is, it is. It's a really touching, beautiful performance. Absolutely. And he really doesn't have an offbeat. That's the thing about him. That's how on his game in that movie he is, especially when he starts going to like, he takes, you know, not to be too spoiler and we'll try not to be, but, you know, he takes a detour and starts visiting places that meant something to him. And I just, every one of them I felt, I felt, I, I felt, and I, I will ask you about the writing of this, but I felt you had, 
you knew that this was factual. Like as I was watching, I didn't know it, the fact and fiction line blurred very quickly, and I just assumed this was all the true facts about Bert because it just felt he sold it so well. Well, thank you for that. Well, first of all, it is absolutely based on his real life, yeah. and so there are certain key things that I knew as a fan that I wanted to include in the character. Mm. I mean, he had played college football. Yeah. He did want to be a professional athlete. He did have a career-ending injury that forced him to have to take a different path. You know what I mean? He did do his own stunts. He did get a lot of injuries from that. He did become a huge movie star. And he did have a lot of regrets. I mean, Bert is very candid about his ups and downs, his public ups and downs, and the mistakes he made, and his bravado when he was on top, you know, and some of the enemies he might have made along the way. And I wanted to capture that vibe, but I did fictionalize a lot of stuff along the way, too. I don't want to spoil some, you know, spoil anything. There's yeah. certain things that are uh, fictional that his character reveals that, that didn't happen in, in his real life. And that was important to me, too, because I wanted to make sure it was still a performance. Yeah. I didn't want it to just be a documentary of Bert being Bert, you know, doing sort of a quasi-docu-drama. Mm -hmm. I wanted him to be playing this character who's named Vic Edwards. And so some of the really deep emotional moments that he experiences and, and, and uh, goes through in the movie are based on some fiction. And he really dug deep in terms of things that he can relate to, but weren't 100% accurate in terms of his own mm -hmm. life. But he could he could still relate to it. Was there anything that was too close to him where he just, were there any ground rules based on script or revisions you had to do where he's just like, this is too close to home? Or was, it, was he able to kind of separate it from his actual life? It's interesting. You know, there were a few times on the set where he would do a scene. Yeah. And then when we were done shooting, he'd have to step away and he'd get choked up. Yeah. And I'd go over to him and I'd say, "Are we are we going into places that we shouldn't be going?" I didn't I didn't want to f exploit him, yeah. you know. And he said, "No, we have to do it." And he was he was right there, wanting mm. to do it, saying, "You know, this is tough for me to get through, but we've got to we've got to push forward. I've got to express this." He he was not shy. I was the one who was worried about it, but not him. I did have to make one script change for him, though, and mm. I will tell you the story because it's. It's very Burt Reynolds. <laughs> so when, when I first sent him the script and he called me the next day, and I hope I'm not speaking out of school telling this story, but it, it, it adds to the legend of Burt Reynolds, yeah. so I don't feel too bad about telling it. But um, I asked him if he wanted any script changes, and he said, I have one script change that I'd like to suggest. And there's, as you know, there's yeah. a, a plot in the movie where his character is invited to a film festival in Nashville <laughs> that he believes, and he's supposed to get a Lifetime Achievement Award, and he believes this is a great honor and a revered film festival. And when Because he Chevy Chase tells him. So. <laughs> right, because his, his best buddy, played by Chevy Chase, tells him, you got to go. Exactly. Was there anything to that? The, the, I was wondering, are they friends in real life? They had never met, but Chevy oh. wanted to meet him. Oh, wow. Chevy was a huge Burt fan, which is yeah. why Chevy wanted to do it. I, I liked them as friends. I, 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 I kind of want totally a buddy film. With They've that. become friends, and now we're talking about that. Oh, oh that's gosh. I kid you wow. not. Yeah, that's wow. great. So, so, um, so he, go, he shows up to this film festival that he thinks is going to be this big gala film festival, and it's a bunch of geeks showing movies in the back room of a bar, and he feels like he was snookered into coming, right? So he's, he's not happy that he's there, and this sort of starts him on his downward spiral over the course of this weekend that causes him to have this sort of uh, reflective uh, experience. But in the uh, original script, there's a scene where he's doing a Q&A at this film festival. You know, there's 30 people in the audience yeah. asking him questions. And they start asking him, and he's drunk at this one scene. He's very yeah. drunk. And 
uh, one of the kids asked him, did he ever have sex with Angie Dickinson? And because he's drunk, he says, damn right I did, mm. right? And then somebody else asked, did you ever have sex with so-and-so? <laughs> and he says, damn right I did. And then the joke is that every person who raises their hand, they throw out another name. And he said, yep, yep, yep. He, he, and he basically had sex with I li every name I could think of of anyone famous from like 1960 yeah. to 1980, I put in the scene. And the joke was that it just went on and on and yeah. on and on. So he said, listen, I... Um, I'm not a kiss and tell kind of guy. <laughs> and he said, uh, I'd like for you to take out the names of the people that I've been with because I don't want to embarrass anybody and I don't want to embarrass anybody's family. I said, I, I totally understand. Of course. I, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Uh, let me get a pen and, and I'll write down the names you want me to take out. I said, okay, I'm ready. Which names should I take out? And he went, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> He is the bandit. He's the bandit. <laughs> wow. So that gag's not in it at all. I can't So that got cut out. I yeah, was like, yeah, I don't remember anybody Yeah, no, that, that's not, that was taken out of the script. Oh, uh, yes. wow. wow. Uh, so, I mean, you know, for me, yeah, Deliverance was the first time I saw him on screen. I saw that at like eight, and I, I can honestly say that's that was my- You saw that at eight. That, yeah, it was one of the, when we got a VHS player, it was one of the first films, and my memory was just like, that's what a man is. Absolutely. The character he played, like, because all the other guys aren't men. Like, that's they're right. men. It's yeah. all about masculinity, but what he plays is what you're meant to be. Be. Yeah. And and it really stuck with me for years yeah. that that was the most manly. And then he's obviously like reduced to, yeah. you know, uh, uh, kind of he's uh, rendered imp impotent in yeah. the movie in a sense. But uh, what are some of the like key Burt films for you? Just well, that's, years, like, that is absolutely one of not only my favorite Burt films, but one of my favorite films of all time. It's one of the best American movies. Absolutely. And, yeah. and what you mentioned is exactly what the movie's about to me. I mean, yes, it's a movie about faded fame, but it's also a movie about growing old. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to show was what time does to us all. Yeah. And I thought the best way to examine that was to, and that's why I use clips from some of his old films. Yeah. I love that, by the way. Thank you. I thought that was really it, that's, I remember Rob seeing it before I got a chance, and he, he talked about that one moment. And it's it's kind of, it's almost a spoiler in a sense because it's so mind-blowing the way you do it, but it's him interacting with his previous self in the other I, movies, and I it's so awesome. Yeah, it's so I was going to say, I was telling somebody about the movie today, and I, I had to throw that in because I really feel like that. I think it's important. That yeah. sells the movie in a way that Thank you. they can't, I don't know, because I just loved it. I was like, oh, it's so cool because not only, only okay i don't want, i don't want to get too deep into it but what he's saying to himself and the way that you juxtapose it with actual dialogue in the films i thought was really great thank and, you so much it was really well done and i wanted to sh and that was very on purpose i wanted to show i mean cuz here's burt reynolds yeah, burt reynolds in his prime to me is the quintessential masculine male mm -hmm. he here is this herculean statue of virility right but in the same scene now here is burt reynolds as an 80-something-year-old man. And if time can do this to Burt Reynolds, it can do it to us all. And I wanted to show how merciless time can be. Well, and it's particularly apt because, and you you don't think about this when you're young, but as you get older, and especially if you get to know someone like a Burt or somebody in that, uh, inside you're exactly the same. It's true. And you're so, trapped in this yeah, prison of old. Prison. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're trapped in this this old prison, but you feel, you think the exact same way you thought when you were... You were 28, probably, 28. 26. And to talk like, to yeah. Burt Reynolds... That's exactly what you see. Mm -hmm. Because when Burt Reynolds is telling stories, and he is the best storyteller oh, I have ever met, oh, wow. okay. and he has stories about everybody, because mm -hmm. he knew everybody. Mm -hmm. And when he became famous, he actually befriended all his heroes. So that's why he was such good friends with Betty Davis, and Groucho Marx, and Vincent Price, and, oh, wow. and, and Spencer Tracy was his mentor. And all mm -hmm. these people that he grew up worshiping, he became buddies with. So he has stories about all of them, not to mention the Frank Sinatra stories and, and everything. So anyway, 
<laughs> so when you talk to him, yeah. when you walk into a room and you see him sitting there, you his see memory's him. better than yours. Probably. <laughs> that's, true, that's true. When you walk into a room and you see him sitting there before you talk to him, you see an old man. Mm-hmm. But as soon as he starts telling you a story, there's the twinkle in his eye and you can see inside those eyes, he is still a 30 year old man. The things he says, the, th- the way he reacts, the stories he tells, and he does have a great memory for every detail. He is trapped. This 30-year-old man, this virile dude, uh, the bandit, is trapped in the body of an 80-some-odd-year-old man. And he's got arthritis because of all the injuries from all the stunts oh, and the, mm-hmm. and the, and the uh, uh, football injuries. And it's just, to me, uh, it was poignant to see Bert in this state. And that's why I wanted to do this movie. And that's why I wanted to have those fantasy sequences where he confronts his younger self. And he tries to convince his younger self not to live so recklessly because all the mistakes that he made as a young man are the reasons why he is who he is today. But, of course, nobody... And when they're young would listen to their older self and do anything differently so that's you know i wanted to explore that and that, was that so seems to be why you also cast him opposite a young woman because it's a way to keep the twinkle in his eye going the whole way exactly it's like an energy she's kind of exactly. brash and youthful yeah and it just keeps the thing moving it's that makes true sense. it's true and yeah. i felt if, it, if i had cast like a young uh, nerdy dude who yeah. who was driving around it wouldn't have had the same dynamic and and bert as the actor might not try in the same <laughs> like you know what i mean i think that sometimes i'll watch men and they become really energized around a younger woman or waitresses oh, because bert comes suddenly alive. they're on yeah. When when Bert's in the presence of a, a, a young lady, yeah. oh my God, it's so great to see. And he flirts, and they love him. Yeah, I mean, women of all ages love Bert. And by the way, here's something funny too. He'd come onto the set, and he'd meet another uh, a person who worked on the crew, or, or uh, another actor who you know, female actor who's yeah. in the film, or, or an extra. Suddenly, he'd be handing her a white rose. It's like, where did that? <laughs> he had an endless supply of white roses. Wow. We have no idea where they kept what coming from. Yeah. He just kept. Ha- handing them out uh, every day to a new one to someone else it was so funny that's, that's pretty so wild sweet. well we were talking about uh, a movie I love of his because also I guess something that's not discussed nearly enough is Bert as director in my opinion he's uh, a great director Sharky's Machine is a movie I Fabulous. really love and Fabulous. also a great performance by him really interesting yeah. tonal shifts yep. in that movie uh, did, th- did you ever get to talk to him about him as a director at all? a lot and some of the movies that he directed are terrific I mean The End is a great movie Gator end. is a great yeah, movie Gator. yeah so there were many times we were, when we were making this film where I'd kind of I'd kind of feel that I'd painted myself into a corner hmm. and I'd say Bert I have a question for Burt Reynolds, the director. (laughs) You say, what's up? I said, all right, I have this shot that leads us to here, and I have this shot that leads us to here, but I need to somehow get to this point, and and we only have time for one or two setups. What would you do? Uh And he thinks for one minute, and he goes, maybe if you put the camera there, and then the thing, and then once that, I put the camera over there for the second shot. Why didn't I think of that? It was brilliant. Every time. I mean, he just had great instincts for it, and it makes me realize he should have directed more. Because mm-hmm. he was a great director. What drew him to want to direct? Do you know, like, was it just he he had a chance to do it, or did he actually have an impulse to be a director? Well, I don't know. I I I, uh, I can't speak for him, but yeah. what I gathered mm. was that it gave him a great freedom. Mm. You know, uh, and also too, he and Clint were kind of neck and neck for all those years. Yeah. <laughs> Clint was directing, and yep. and and Bert. Uh, it was natural for Bert yeah. to be directing. You know, and he was. He had a really just natural ability. And so much of directing is casting. And he had such a great eye for casting. I mean, if you look at the cast of The End. Starring Burt Reynolds as a man who's about to die. What's that supposed to mean? It means lying in the ground with dirt on your face and holding your breath forever. Dom DeLuise as his committed friend. Why did you say it, dummy? Sally Field as his loving mistress. Sonny, not now. (laughs) 
David Steinberg as his concerned attorney. I'm going to kill myself. What do you say, Sonny? You like the enchilada plate? Joanne Woodward as his compassionate ex-wife. I didn't walk out the door. You threw me out the door. With two hookers. One little mistake. Carl Reiner as his doctor, whose business is dying. <laughs> Norman Fell, Myrna Loy, Struther Martin, Christy McNichol, Pat O'Brien, and Robbie Benson. Surprise! <laughs> the End. A comedy for you and your next of kin. That is a brilliant cast from top to bottom. I mean, he 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 cast Myrna Loy for God's sakes in the movie. I, I mean, uh, amazing cast. Norman Fell he put in huh, the end. Yeah. Great. That is a, that's a movie that has not come up on the show, but yeah. I'm a huge fan, and we have to find. Well, we were, yeah, we we're going to do it all in number, but this is beca- this got to become that now. <laughs> yeah, <I know>. uh, <laughs> are there any outliers that people might not like talk about as much in, in his filmography that you might Hustle. suggest? Hustle. Oh, okay. Hustle. Is that the one with Catherine Deneuve? Yep. Yes. <laughs> Burke Reynolds is the cop who cracks down on the dirtiest game in town. Why'd you kill those kids? Why'd you kill that old couple? We're gonna make dog food out of you. That's it. Game's over. Bingo. Catherine Deneuve is the call girl. I'd like that. Who plays that game. They meet. like nothing you've ever seen before. Hustle. No matter what you call it, we all do it. Hustle. Rated R. And that, and that was the, and it was the movie that uh, Robert Aldrich directed right after they had done Longest Yard together, oh. which is another brilliant Burt movie. Yeah. But Robert Aldrich, as you may know, was also a brilliant film noir filmmaker. Yeah, and so Hustle is this great neo-noir film, and the relationship mm. between him and Catherine Deneuve not only is super sexy, but it's dark. She's mm. a prostitute. And he, I mean, he, he's having issues with her career, but he can't commit to her. And I mean, it's just it's it's really an interesting, dark movie. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, I actually I've been th- I've been looking at that for whenever we did the Burt, but I haven't watched it. So, yeah. Uh, oh, you're going to love it. Yeah, I love it. think I've seen it, but now I can't remember because yeah. some of the Burt's I love them and they run together in a good way. But I don't know if I've seen it either. Yeah. It's super noirishly shot too. Oh, I mean, nice. heavy shadows. Really, really. What great. year is that? Like mid seventies? That must have been. I mean, if if Longest Yard was probably seventy three, two or three. Right. It's probably you know a year after that. So that's a few like years that. after mid-70s. Belle Du Jour, where she's yeah, still yeah. just the yeah. most desirable yeah. woman. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, Bert also uh, famously dated Catherine Deneuve for a while after that movie, and all these little. That's things a just, coupling. I just, just can't. You just, just can't imagine just that. Just add right? up to what makes Bert Reynolds my hero. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, he told me, he said to me that when he was uh, wooing her, he took her on a picnic under the Hollywood sign and he had this big basket and the French baguettes and he was, you know, doing whatever he could to impress her. Yeah. And she said to him, you're trying too hard. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I know. <laughs> I want to just have all the love stories. Can we just do a whole podcast on his love I stories? Can't ima- like, I can't believe you got anything done on your set because I would have just been like, oh, let's just get a couple That's more That's all I wanted to do. When the cameras were repositioning, I would sit down and I'd say, okay, Bert, Groucho Marx, oh, go. Yeah. Or, or whoever. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'd just oh, say, you know, uh, uh, 
Don Rickles, go. Or, you know, he, he just had stories about everybody. That's so cool. Groucho, yeah, Groucho was, it seemed like somebody who, in his, at, towards the end, became friends with certain people. Oh, yeah. And really yeah. just became interesting, a, yeah, interesting, interesting friends. People. Yeah, yeah. I think Rob Zombie. I, I believe it was, I he think, loved, I think it was him. somebody like that that really surprised me at one point. If somebody who was like, really? They became friends. Well, you know who was really close to um, Groucho in those days was Elliot Gould. Oh, yeah. No, you know what? That might be who I'm thinking of. It might have been based on one yeah, of the interviews. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, fa- it's fascinating. They're yeah. like, I mean, it's great because it does feel like then Hollywood, somehow that river of Hollywood and the experience that everyone has yeah. does keep going. Without that, I feel like things just die. It's true. These relationships. But he, it's true. Like in, the, in that sort of hippie era of Hollywood, yeah. uh, Groucho Marx became buddies with all these sort of counterculture mm. icons like, um, like Elliot Gould. And there's all those famous photos of Groucho with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. They would like hang out a little bit. Yeah. I don't know how often, but it's, they're great shots. You know? oh, yeah, that's oh, right. Man. Uh, well, speaking of sexy men <laughs> like Bert, uh, basically you did the same thing uh, with your next film that we're also <laughs> discussing today, uh, Director's Cut, uh, with the pin-up heartthrob, uh, Pen. <laughs> pen <laughs> Gillette. And anybody can then have access to all this footage from any computer? Yep. All you need is the password. I love you. I got a tattoo. David, can someone get security, please? Get this fucking guy out of here. I want that tape erased. I'm taking this. No, no, no. Who the fuck is this? dressing room. You cannot be in here. You need to be quiet. No, no, no. Be very quiet. An actress named Missy Pyle has gone missing. This is crazy. I mean, where is she anyway? Why can't we find her? Missy, the martini shot is up. Just read the lines right off the cue cards, okay? You are very attractive. I work in movies, so I have a good idea how evil works. We're a great team. I take filmmaking very seriously. It's my calling. It's like they're hunting humans. Pendulette. Uh who changed physically radically by the end of your <laughs> end of your production. Like now, he looks like he's lost an incredible amount of weight. But um, it's true. Like w- this is a this is a movie you're gonna probably have to explain the plot because I feel like any description from us will probably inherently be a spoiler. No yeah, problem, how do you sir. do it to not spoil for Well, people? here's the inherent problem with director's cut mm. is that it's a really tough sell. Because how do you sell it? Yeah, I think you, you know? just say it's film school. You yeah. want to watch film school? Here it is. That's a, you can understand every aspect. Uh, of I don't film know school. why we didn't think of that. It is before. very educational on that we- level, you know. But it, I mean, if you're level. if you're thinking about like easy movies to figure out how to sell, yeah. right? Like prom night. There's a killer at the prom. Boom. That's yeah. all you need to know. Right. You know what I mean? Everything else you've you've now filled in every other scene in your mind just by that description, uh-huh. right? But director's cut. I'll I'll give you the best version we have of how to describe it. Mm-hmm. But it's it's still a tough sell. So it's a movie about a cinema-obsessed stalker. Crowdfunder. <laughs> who buys access to a movie set by being that movie's biggest crowdfunding con- contributor, mainly because he's obsessed with the lead female of that movie, played by Missy Pyle playing herself. 
he he bought the all access pass so that he could be on the set every day. While on set, he kidnaps Missy Pyle. He steals all the footage from the film. He retreats to his basement, creepy movie studio dungeon under his house where he forces Missy Pyle to star in additional scenes in the movie where he's now cast himself as her romantic lead. He then takes all the footage from the real movie and all this bizarro amateur footage he shot himself and basically fan edits the entire thing together into this bizarre mashup that he considers his director's cut. That's not the easiest way to sell a movie. Right. But that basically sums it up. Yeah, well, that, I, and I think that's the story of the movie. I, I think in a way it might, like how to pitch it might also come from the idea of what, what were you wanting to satirize when you came up? Like what was, not necessarily that you're thinking consciously of that, but what was the impetus for that kind of a story? Because it's so specific and so outside the box that only a director who'd made previous movies could well, make this movie. And the fact, you know? I mean, I don't want to spoil any more, but I mean, and the fact that he's giving a director's commentary on the cut we're watching. Yeah. Well, the director's commentary angle was, now, the movie was written by Penn Jillette, oh, and Penn oh. has told the story oh. before that it's the concept of the director's commentary that sparked the idea for him. And he hates the word satire, and he yeah. hates to admit this movie's a satire. And I've said to him, <laughs> Penn, it is a satire. Yeah, it, uh, I can't a, think of anything else yeah, you could call no, it. I mean, you can say it's not a satire all you right. want, but, it's, but it is a satire. And what he's basically wanting, to, what he basically wanted to do initially was embrace the idea of the uh, unreliable narrator uh, used in a, in a way that it had never been used before, and that's through a director's commentary track. Because he feels that the intimacy of a director's commentary, the, the tone of the voice, the silence of the room, the, the comforting, dulcimer tones of the filmmaker as he's taking you through the story of how this movie was made, inherently feels earnest and authentic and believable even if what the director is saying is bullshit, right? <laughs> so he wanted to use the director's commentary as a narrative device and, and have that narrator be an unreliable narrator. And, uh, and he was told that that was not possible to do, so he said, I'll show you, and he did it, and he wrote the script. And the way I came into it, I had directed, and I had wrote, written and directed a film about 10 years ago called Look, Oh, yeah. And Look is a drama that was entirely shot from the point of view of surveillance cameras. Mm -hmm. And it was it was a comment on our uh, voyeur-obsessed culture, but also it deals with issues of privacy and uh, and uh, lack of privacy. And, and and you just love Sliver. And I, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you just couldn't hold your back. You're like, That's right. <laughs> so um, he had seen the movie Look after mm. it had come out, uh, years after it had come out, and uh, liked it a lot. And he called, this was on a Friday night. He called his manager and his agents and he said, I want to find a director named Adam Rifkin who directed a movie called Look uh, because I want to talk to him about that movie. And they said, we'll get right on it first thing Monday morning. So he was not satisfied with that. So he went online and he found me on Facebook and saw that we had some mutual friends. So he sent me a private message on Facebook and said that he had just seen Look and said some very complimentary things about it and please call him. And he left his number. Now, I was on Friday night home because I have no life. <laughs> and uh, I uh, was very flattered that I got this message from Pendulette. So I wrote him back. And I said, uh, thank you so much. And I don't want to bother you late on a Friday night. So here's my number. Call me anytime over the weekend. And I 
two seconds after I pressed send, my phone rang and it was Penn. <laughs> so we immediately started talking about the movie and he was really into the movie and it was really exciting for me because he is a bona fide genius. So him liking the movie was a really nice feeling. And he said, I uh, had, he, he said, I wrote a movie called Director's Cut. He told me a little bit about what it was about. And he said, uh, after seeing Look, I feel you're the only director who can direct it. And uh, would you consider directing it? I said, generally, I prefer to direct what I've written, but I'm open to anything, of course. And I have directed things I haven't written before. So please send it. So he sent it, he emailed it to me right then. I read it immediately. By three o'clock in the morning, we were talking again hmm. and we agreed we would make the movie together. Wow. I couldn't say no because it was such a unique opportunity as a filmmaker because it's it's a chance to make two movies in one. It's a chance to make this flashy <laughs> B-thriller ripoff of Seven, you know, yeah. uh, uh, and really just sh as a director show off with that movie and an opportunity to direct this amateur, freako, stalker, do-it-yourself movie in a basement with a camcorder and somehow Frankenstein them together mm -hmm. and have it make sense, uh, I, how can I say no to that? Th that would never come along uh, otherwise. So I said, yes, we're going to make it. And he was excited and I was excited. And then we pretty much, about a minute later, realized this is going to be an impossible movie to get funded. <laughs> yeah. who, would, who would fund this movie? So sometime soon after that, it wasn't that phone call, but not long after that, Penn said, why don't we try crowdfunding it? Um, he had some friends who had crowdfunded some movies, and I had some friends that had crowdfunded some movies. We were talking about it. He said, let's do it. He said, I'll be the face of the crowdfunding campaign. I have two million plus Twitter followers. I'm somewhat famous. Yeah. If it doesn't work, I'll be the one that takes the hit as far as being embarrassed. You uh, wouldn't have to worry about that. Uh, he said, but if it works, we can make the movie. I said, absolutely, let's do it. And luckily, it worked. And we raised actually more money than we were looking for. Mm. And so we were able to make the movie with complete creative freedom, no studio interference, exactly the way we wanted to make it, which is precisely why it was impossible to sell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, with within reason what you can say, like, what were people's, especially the kind of people, because this is a movie that audiences are going to find interesting and compelling, but, like, I can't even imagine what it would be like in a screening room for the studio kind of people. Yeah, you're satirizing. Like, what was what were some of those reactions? Well, that's the funny thing. I mean, in terms of audiences, right, the movie opened Slamdance, yeah. and the audience loved it. Mm -hmm. The movie played Fright Fest, the audience loved it. Audiences got it, yeah. loved it. Buyers sitting in a screening room on the lot of the studio watching this thing in, you know, with three other people in the room had no clue what, what to make of it. And I said to them, it doesn't matter if you get it. There's an audience out there for weirdo movies. And they're like, how do we sell it? I say, you sell it by saying this is a weirdo movie <laughs> yeah. written by Penn Jillette, who's yeah, a Penn Jillette stalker movie. Who's a, say, yeah, who's know. a magician. He's a famous magician. Say that this is this movie is a hat trick of a movie. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. it's a it's a sleight of hand, a cinematic sleight of hand, you yeah. know? Just say anything that sounds intriguing because the audience is gonna find it. They anyway, they didn't get it. So um, the movie sat on a shelf for two years. We opened uh -huh. Slamdance 2016. So then Cut to two years later, uh, there was a big announcement in Deadline that Dread Central Presents was being unveiled as this uh, really cool horror slate uh, under the Epic Pictures umbrella and that it was going to be curated by and, and run by Rob Galuzzo. And so I reached out and we knew a lot of the same people, but we had mm -hmm. never actually met. And I reached out to him on Facebook as well, I believe. Hmm. 
and I said, hey, Rob, um, while you're looking for movies to acquire, please check out Director's Cut because if you've got this uh, label, um, I've got a movie that everybody has been afraid to touch. And so maybe, just maybe, you guys, you know, with your punk rock sensibilities, won't be so afraid to touch it. He said, I need to see it immediately. He watched it. He contacted me back. He said, we're, we're releasing this movie. I don't care if it's a tough sell. This is part of our slate. I get it. And he has been true to his word. And he and all the people at Dread Central Presents and all the people at Epic Pictures have embraced the movie. And they know exactly how to sell it. And it's out now. It was out theatrically before. Now, now it's out on VOD. And it's coming out on a huge, packed Blu-ray hmm. uh, DVD combo in, in like a couple weeks. Do you get to watch the actual movie <laughs> that they Well, pre-cut? it's funny you should say. We have scenes from the actual uh. movie within the movie on the Blu-ray. But one thing we're talking about is actually finishing that movie <laughs> That's awesome. and releasing it as a separate movie. <laughs> Rob had told me that off air. And I thought and he said like it's some certain cultures that might like fly better. I was like, that's so funny. Like, I mean, it's kind of a perfect way to ever. If anything, that might be a great advertising tool for them. Totally. Well, listen, so. we've got 70% of a movie finished. that is not what the movie's about. I mean, Director's Cut is not about the movie that's being shot, but we had to shoot a real movie in order to have the footage to talk over. So if you take the director's commentary off and we shoot another 15 minutes, uh, you know, 20 minutes of the movie, we've got a B horror thriller in the vein of Seven that we can completely exploit. And it's easy to sell. You just call it Seven with Harry Hamlin. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it sells itself exactly. in certain districts. <laughs> exactly. I love, uh, <laughs> I love seeing him in this movie. That was so neat. He's so cool. And <laughs> I, I think, I mean, my favorite parts are the film school element of it. I think that's super fun. I don't know how much you were able to enjoy. And when I would say that, I mean the director commentary moments where uh, Penn is literally pointing out cinematic techniques well, and breaking down certain ideas well, of well, film language. Well, that's why I say, I mean, this movie is a parrot. I mean, it, it is a, a satire because... Yeah. Because it's a satire of fan culture. Mm-hmm. It's a satire of, you know, everybody is an expert now yeah. on cinema because of director's commentaries yeah. and because of all the film Stupid sites. podcasts. Podcasts. And, you know, <laughs> eggheads like us. Everybody <laughs> yeah. is an expert now. Yeah, yeah. So it is a satire of all of that, yeah. you know, and it's also just a satire of the movie making process. You know what I mean? It's yeah. an exaggeration of that. But I will say Hollywood is already so larger than life and and so easy to poke fun at and yeah. so even when you're being earnest about hollywood it you can't help but feel that it's parody or satire so you just play it straight and it's a satire <laughs> yeah, if yeah. you're doing something about hollywood like like the player which is one of my favorite movies yeah, yeah. about hollywood people who aren't from la when they see it they, i've had people say to me that's a that movie's a really great parody about hollywood i said that's not a parody yeah. that is a that is a accurate <laughs> reflection of hollywood yeah. hollywood is a parody of itself yes oh, yeah i was i was at a diner recently and malcolm McDonald I'll tap me on the shoulder and say, if you're going to call me an asshole, make sure you say it to my motherfucking face. <laughs> <laughs> I always think about that line. It's just one of the great, great lines in a movie. It's and, great. And I'm sure it's happened uh, multiple times. Uh, were you able to bring any of your own experience, even though you didn't write the script, I, I really like your performance, by the way. Oh, yeah, you're thank good. you. I thought you were really good. <laughs> Very natural. Uh, but were you able to, as, like, I don't know if you did any rewriting, but were you able to bring any of your horror stories or the things you've had to kind Because obviously there's a lot of suffering oh, with, to have a career up without, to where you without are. Without a doubt. Yeah. And that's one of the great things about working with Penn is that that movie became a total collaboration between me, Penn, mm-hmm. and M- Missy Pyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, really, it really evolved as we went along because it's such, a, it's such an odd movie. 
and it's such an it was such an odd process making it and and bringing it to life. And Penn has no aspirations to be a director. Hmm. He he's a con big concept guy, hmm. right? So his concept was he wants to make this movie where the unreliable narrator device is the director's commentary, and he wrote a great script, an amazing script. But that became then a the catalyst for how the movie evolved in many different ways along the process. Like for example. When he first wrote the script, it was a straight horror film. It mm. was a brutal horror film mm. about this evil, horrible guy who kidnaps this actress and is torturing her mercilessly, forcing her to act in this amateur film. And there was nothing funny about it. It was scary and it was violent. So it's more, more like the trend we had in the splatter yes. with uh, yes. Eli Roth's film. It was exactly films, like yeah. Hostel, yeah. Uh, that vibe. That period we had, yeah. Exactly. But... Once we decided to crowdfund the movie, then that changed things slightly because then crowdfunding became a he. Then that worked its way into the movie. So the movie is very meta, right? Yeah. So so once we decided to crowdfund the movie, then it seemed like a natural to have the movie that we're making be a crowdfunded movie. Mm. So that worked its way into the story. And then when Missy Pyle got cast, like we had, and it's not uh, out of school to say we had talked to other actresses prior to casting <clears throat> Missy Pyle. She knew that. And, and some of the other actresses that we were going to cast, it was still going to be a straight horror film. But once we met Missy Pyle, she's so funny mm. and she's so light and she's so lovable. It was so obvious to us all that to torture her would not be fun to watch. Yeah. It would be much more pleasing to see someone revere her, love her, be obsessed with her. And then it became much more of a black comedy. And the way I described it, was more like the Phantom of the Opera, mm -hmm. where Penn is just this misunderstood monster who loves the pretty girl and is in his ill-conceived you know, way trying to impress her by making the perfect movie for her, but he's doing it abhorrently with terrible people skills. And uh, then it just, it just evolved into this really comedic, much more satirical look at movies and movie making. And well, there's another film with that culture. tone a little bit, uh, a little film that uh, Brian is a big fan of. I know, King of Comedy. How can I not think about it? I mean, I've been sitting here at lunch with you, which I knew is the reason you invited me from the first place. And all I'm sitting here and eating for is to get guilty with you, right? Well, and that's it has another, elements. And that's that, another movie that we yeah. we talked about a lot. That's mm -hmm. one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, that's and so funny. and and the King of Comedy was definitely a movie that I was describing while we were making it. I also described Phantom of the Opera, like I said, and I also described Bowfinger a little bit. I, yes. I think you Bowfinger know? is a magnificent yeah, yeah. comedy. Exactly. It really holds up yeah. too. Yeah, one of great. the best things Eddie Murphy's yeah, done. Without I a agree. Doubt. Happy premise number two. Happy premise number two. There is no giant foot trying to squash me. Uh, do you would you remember the first time you saw King of Comedy? What like because I, I remember the first time I saw that film because of the way it's. I feel like it it treads this great razor wire uh, where I didn't know I was too young to maybe totally understand what it was poking fun of, and at po points it's uncomfortable. Very, you, you know, watching him Very doing comedy is yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, do you do you recall like I, how that? Well, felt? when I first saw the King of Comedy, and that's one of the movies that, like you say, as I've matured and seen it in different parts of, of uh, times of my life, mm. I see it in a different way each time. Uh, but when I first saw it, I was just such a maniacal Scorsese fan yeah. that I just loved it because he made it. Mm -hmm. But then as I got older and I started to appreciate what it really was about and what a creep Rupert Pupkin is, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that inability to have any connection to – the inability to read a room, to be able to tell mm -hmm. when he's crossing some, any sort of line with people – uh, it, it's unnerving, mm. and uh, but it's hilarious, but yeah. it's really creepy. 
And Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Jerry Lewis, fab, fab So good. Kind of reminds yeah. me of how you used Bert. I mean, very different. It's not the end of his career. Sure, but, but it's but the same it's kind of similar. Yeah. It's coming from a place of love yeah, and admiration. Yeah. Which but is, I, I thought that The King of Comedy, I still, I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Nice. And it's a very, that's a very underrated film. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I had to find a way to get it in there, because uh, just in case it doesn't come up. Yeah. Uh, well, satire in general. So, so you have two films. Obviously, one is just, you know, to me, it's deeply ingrained. And like, sat- as you were saying, satire has so many different parts of film culture. Uh, and very right now, even though it was made two years ago, it's, it seems so present because of the crowdfunding, yeah. I think, angle to well, the Well, by the way, well. by the, way the, the, the movie, and Penn has said this in interviews, the movie could not have been made any other time than now because mm. the technology that exists now allows this movie to exist because you can make you can shoot footage on an iPhone you can edit it at home you can you can do uh, green screen comping uh, with an app. Yeah, another live. Th- yeah. One of my favorite things. In there. Yeah, he, he, he's saying when, when we're the waiting, running, he loves you running. The running green stage. screen running is pretty goddamn Thank funny. you, thank you. Pretty so, so I mean, if we if it was ten years ago, that would not have been as easily accessible, and it just wouldn't have been an option. Well, and also I think a big plot point of the film is the idea that the footage is just something. You know, what is footage now? It's just a file that gets sent it's over true. an internet connection and then stored somewhere. We're back in the ten years ago, you would. Have had steel actual film and yeah. make prints, and it's, it would have been impossible. Would have so, been impossible. Yeah, it's. Uh, but uh, so those two films are both available right now. That's so right. Make sure people uh, check in. In fact, the last movie star just became available on Amazon Prime, which is uh, great. Oh, excellent! Which so anybody out there, please check it out. Everybody and, check it out. Yeah, and and director's cut is available on all the VOD platforms at the moment, and the Blu-ray DVD combo pack, the super packed Blu-ray DVD combo pack, comes out in about two weeks. And I've never. I mean, this is one of the things that's so great about the guys over there at Dread Central Presents and Epic Pictures. I've never had a more packed, more comprehensive mm. Blu-ray com- uh, uh, release. I mean, it's so many cool extras. It's uh, I I don't even know how long it all adds up to, but at least the length of the movie is worth the stuff. That's what happens when you let fans, you know, work in distribution, right? <laughs> because you know, you, I mean, Rob being such a collector. I was say, we've both been to Rob's apartment. Yeah. We know. Yes, he's exactly. He's a big Blu-ray yeah. guy. I'm exactly. not surprised. It's great. And as it's he would great. say, uh, rate the film, even if you don't like a film, because he says this it really helps drive people does, to it, discover it these films. It helps so much. Yeah, absolutely, which is interesting. Though Adam will say, only rate it if you like it, because <laughs> <laughs> he has you know ego to worry about. I, I would. <laughs> (laughs) Prefer people rate it if they like it, but Uh, the better. So, well, in terms of satire, like I'm, I'm trying to think what in your mind because almost all your work, whether you know whether it's conscious or not, and I'm sure a lot of it is just how you you know see the world through through the veil of you has that element of real real biting sometimes, sometimes over the top funny, but biting under. And even saying like small soldiers, you feel that. I mean, obviously Joe's directing that, but you which he also does that. Yeah, absolutely, and he's as good as anybody. We talk about the burps all the time on here. Being, you know, because because they're movies that can feel like light as a feather, but underneath you're like, oh, there's actually something kind of dark yeah. under. Yeah, well, matinee is really good. Yeah. Really, that oh. that whole Cold War stuff is really powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you know you got a movie that has mant in it, but also deals yeah. with uh, that Cold War at any minute. You know, atomic bomb could drop in our neighborhood. Fear, it's great. Well, and I think his um his Master of Horror episode uh, where where the guys are zombies are coming back to vote. Yeah, is still just one of those. I mean, even though it's like such it's such a big bold obvious kind of statement it 
it's just so perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but like, so what? What do you think makes for good satire? Because like, the only thing that keeps coming back to me that I notice—I don't know if it makes great satire—but what I did notice are my favorite ones, uh, especially thinking of say doc, an obvious one being Doctor Strange, like, one of the greatest, which I think is probably time. the best, yeah. probably the most famous cinema satire. Yeah, but what what strikes me about it is that it's like with great satire, it seems like every. 20 years or something, it comes back to being completely relevant yeah. and completely topical about today. That's right. Even though it has, it was well, written in exactly. a totally different generation. Well, I I, think, I've noticed that with a lot of the best films. Well, I think that's 100% true. I mean, really biting, smart satire is always relevant in some way at the, at the moment. Yeah. You know? And that movie in particular, because we're always living under that cloud of you know, I mean, more more at times, less at times. Yeah. But now, so much so yeah. with what's going on with, you know, North Dimitri. Korea. Yeah, Dimitri, yeah. Yeah, what we said about the bomb. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course, I like to say hello. <laughs> so, so it is that the movie's more relevant now than ever, yeah. and I, I just think that's one of the great things about good satire is that it, it, you can always relate to it. I mean, if a, if a satire is so irrelevant at a time when you see it and it and it doesn't apply anymore, is it even a satire anymore? Right. I, mean, it, 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 I know movies are, are are products of their time generally. Even the best movies are products yeah. of their time, but a really good satire should be able to poke through. You mm-hmm. know. How conscious of being satirical have you been in your work? How much of this is just a natural part of? Because I don't really know uh, what that impulse for you to create comes from. Do, does it, I can't imagine it's coming from. I need to critique society. It's coming from a place of humor and experience. So for you, how how does that? Uh, how did it kind of come about in your work? I rarely sit down and think I'm going to yeah. critique society. I usually just want to tell a story that I think would be a fun story to tell or an interesting story to tell. And I want to make it funny yeah. if it's supposed to be funny. Even if it's not funny, I like to have funny things in it because I always feel like even the most powerful dramas, it's easier to cry with people once you've laughed with people. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't sit down and think, I'm going to write a really biting satire. But these things, first of all, my my just sort of personality, the way I, I see things, I, I guess I can sort of see the folly in things a lot. That's mm-hmm. just the way I look at the world. So that creeps into my work, you know. And if people see it as satire, great. And if people miss the satire but still like the story and laugh at the jokes, that's fine too, you know? That's probably why it sits uh, so comfortably with comedy. You're going to get an, an experience either way. There's right. a lot of films that are satirical that aren't comedy that we'll probably right. touch on a couple. But I think in comedy, maybe it, it's the perfect fit. Uh, well, we, we uh, invite you to play with us as we go around. We're going to pick five titles because, as we always do, listeners to the show, uh, we, we forced Adam to do this <laughs> in a hurry. But he, he's going he's gonna, to like workshop it as we go. Absolutely. Uh, if, do you want us to lead off to give you some buy, yes, buy, you, buy you some time? Please and, start. <laughs> okay. Let's go around the table. You'll be last. All right? Okay. So I'm going to start with, I didn't pick King of Comedy, but I picked a movie that is certainly King of Comedy-esque. Uh, also, another thing we like to do on the show, Adam, is we sometimes like to champion films that we don't feel like people talk about enough. Yeah, yeah, I love and that. Some, so <laughs> some of them are maybe not talked about because they have a reputation for not being the best movies. Uh, my film, my first pick, is called Airheads. Oh, wow. of course, nineteen ninety. Of course, Adam Sandler. Yes, Buscemi? yes, Buscemi. <laughs> 
and my Brendan second Ryan. Brendan Fraser yeah. pick. <laughs> I picked uh, Blast from the Past on a recent Wait, wait, isn't there a Brendan Fra- Did you do the art for Encino Man? Is yes. that a true story? Yes, it's a true story. He did the, the poster for Encino no Man. Here's what happened. Oh, so boy, we got to interrupt for that. Here's, here's what happened. I met, way back when, I met on Encino Man to possibly be the director. Mm. Whoa. And I read the script and I went in and I gave my thoughts and I told them what I would do. And I thought we had a great meeting. And as a follow-up to the meeting, I drew a picture of the evolutionary chart from ape to, you know, Homo erectus to Neanderthal to Cro-Magnon. And then the last one was a dude mm-hmm. in skater shorts, like giving the old, yeah. you know, hang tight, hang loose yeah. uh, uh, a thing with his thumb and pinky and holding a surfboard or a skateboard. Yeah. I don't remember which, right? And I faxed it over and I just said, thanks for a great meeting. I'd love to do Instagram, <laughs> yeah. right? The president of the studio at the time, it was Hollywood Pictures, which was a division huh. of Disney at the time, was a guy named Ricardo Mestres. Now, I, I can mention him by name because he's no longer in the business. <laughs> he's a doctor now. He huh. became a doctor. But he took that drawing and sent it to the marketing department and said, this is going to be the poster for Encino Man. And I didn't get the job as the director. <laughs> when I saw the poster, I called the executive who I had been dealing with, and I said, am I crazy or... <laughs> Did you guys steal my drawing and make it your poster? He said, I'm really sorry about that. He said, I told Ricardo, we can't do this without in some way uh, compensating Adam or at least asking permission. We can't just steal it. And Ricardo said to him, yes, we can. What's he going to do? Sue us? Wow. That's the story. Now, well, that's, no wonder you're satirical of Hollywood. <laughs> now, did I, did I sue them? Of course not. But it's yeah. it's a it's a true story. Wow, so, and yet awesome. somehow it's, it's out there. That you, I'm glad. Yeah, it is actually a really good design. I, I really like that. Well, Thank you. Uh, sorry to interrupt. No, that's good. Oh, buddy. All right, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so Airheads, 1994. I can't take that tape from you. If it's unsolicited, I can't touch it. It's not easy to break into the music business, but these three guys. What's your secret code? I can't tell you my code. Just found a way. <laughs> You guys are a unsigned band, and you broke into the radio station to get your demo played on the air? <laughs> I just feel a little goofy with a water pistol. They don't know it's a water pistol. They think it's real. Whoops! Look, all I want to do is be heard, and then we're out of here. <laughs> okay, who are you guys? My name's Pip. The band. The band name. Sorry about that. Directed by Michael Lehman, did Heathers, oh, uh, yeah. among other things. And I hadn't seen it in years, and I rewatched it for the show. And uh, I enjoy it. It's it is a sort of a dumb comedy, if you will, but it's definitely satirical. It's got elements of Dog Day Afternoon. It's got elements of mm. King of Comedy. I mean, it's basically about a rock slash metal band played by Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi, and Adam Sandler that can't break into the business. They want to get on the air, so they break into a radio station and are gonna try and make them play their song in the air. It turns into a hostage situation. It becomes this big thing. But it very much plays like a, you know, um, came comedy 10 years later kind of thing in terms of the satirical approach and where it goes and all that. And I, I enjoyed it. I just think it's one of those comedies that based on all the people involved, uh, outside of those you, those people I mentioned, you have Michael McKeon, obviously one of the great, and some of the great satirical stuff ever, great comedies ever. And then um, Joe Montaigne plays the radio oh, DJ. And he's oh. really, really funny, actually, throughout the whole thing. Yeah, people forget how uh, versatile Buscemi was. 
I mean, he he still is, but especially early on, he was he played all different types. And then he's kind of buff and he has long hair. You just forget it's, because I think post Reservoir Dogs, he becomes that that. Yeah. For most of his guys, I mean, he's just and that in Fargo, he's just so great. Yeah. You know. But he's still got the Living in Oblivion look. In yeah, this movie. I love Living in Oblivion. Yeah, we've man. talked about it before. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful. But yeah, so so that's that's my first pick. Just. Uh, and surprisingly, another reason I thought it was interesting is it's not really available streaming. Huh. It's on DVD and Blu-ray, but not readily available for people. To yeah, watch it's not that. one I would have thought about since seeing it. But I remember enjoying it. It was fun. I, it was fun. It was it was a fun rewatch. Uh, okay, I got it. My number five. Well, okay, for, to preface it, uh, obviously, They Live is one of the great. I love uh, that movie. So yeah, so I, I couldn't pick They Live because we already did a big Carpenter thing, but a movie that I think is kind of saying very similar things, but in an equally fun way, and is a Trailers from Hell buddy of yours, uh, one of my favorite satirical directors, Larry Cohen. I had to talk right. about the stuff. Up oh, front. I love that movie. It also gave me a chance to rewatch it, and I because I hadn't watched the Blu-ray of this uh, since it got released, oh, nice. so I watched that, and, and I'm so close to picking Bone because that's a, just a, such a such I mean such an edgy. I thought about that film. Too. It's such a smartphone, but the stuff people don't talk about. I think is up there what they live for being just one of the best attacks on consumerism of the 80s warning we interrupt this presentation with the following urgent message regarding the stuff if you see it in stores call the police if you have it in your home don't touch it get out the stuff is a product of nature a deadly living organism it is addictive and destructive it can overcome your mind and take over your body and nothing can stop it. What's so fun about it is because they pick this kind of neutral white-looking stuff. <laughs> it's able to be about the health food industry. It's about it's it's kind of a commentary on smoking and the idea that enough is never enough. Even as it's the film's tagline, uh, really just goes to the fast food industry. So I know I know from interviews with Larry that the impetus came from seeing when he was a lot younger, seeing GIs return from World War II, I guess, uh, and get hooked on smoking mm. due to the advertising. In the old days of television. Almost every other commercial was cigarettes. That's if right. you got the old uh, videos that you see of old television shows, you play them, nothing but cigarette commercials. And I remember the Flintstones ad. There was the, the Flintstones you know, of Fred and, smoking a cigarette with and, Barney. And even even during World War II, all the comedians, Jack Benny, mm-hmm. everybody was Abbott and Costello, even people that catered to kids, were sponsored by cigarettes. And Campbell's cigarettes would send, you know, 500,000 Camel cigarettes to our soldiers. Every week in the Aleutians or in Europe or in Asia, everybody get these cigarettes for free. Well, you know what they were doing. They were addicting an entire generation of young American men. And they, those cigarette companies actually killed more American boys than the Japanese and the Germans combined. I mean, they ki- uh, the total casualties of American lives in World War II was under a million. Those cigarette companies killed tens of millions of young American boys by addicting them to cigarettes, by giving them free cigarettes. Yep. If, if you ever see a war movie, the guy is shot, he's lying there, and his friend comes over to him and says, Charlie. And he says, oh, oh. And they take a cigarette out of his mouth and puts it in the mouth of the guy who's been <sighs> wounded. It's not enough he's been shot. Now they've got to put a fucking cigarette <laughs> in his mouth. Final nail. Exactly. And then, and then when the cigarette falls out of his mouth, you know the guy's dead. But <laughs> how many times you'll see this in World yep. War II movies? Yep. Cigarettes, cigarettes, cigarettes. So I said, this is terrible. They've been poisoning and killing the public for years. Let me make a movie which shows that they actually do this, that they serve you with a product. Are you eating it or is it eating you? Mm-hmm. You know, basically, and what it does to an American family. And, mm-hmm. and enough was never enough. So yeah. I, I think his impetus was smoking, but then he took it to the surroundings. Ob- yeah. Obviously, one of his great talents is 
looking around him at the world and just i mean yeah. the guy can come up with stories while you're talking to him yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's firing on all cylinders uh but this film there's two there's a couple different movies in this movie uh which is always interesting i think the movie where it's about a kid and his family uh and the family's all getting hooked on the stuff and they really want him to eat the stuff too and it's it's really shot like a horror movie yeah. to me that's the most successful movie in this movie i think yeah. it's brilliant like it's just scary i if i think if they ever remade this movie i would just go all in on that part of this movie yeah. and then the other the second movie which is you know really fun uh is basically uh what is his name mo oh he's got a, he's got a great name um Let's see if I write it down. Uh, Mo Rutherford, which is Michael Moriarty's character, because every time somebody I ask my friends for money, I always ask for Mo. <laughs> He's all the way through. And you know, Moriarty's just one of the strangest characters in movies. I, one of those actors who just has this really interesting presence. You can tell he has this improv quality that he brings, no matter what you've cast him as. He's just going to want to play piano, or he's going to want to do something. And in this, he's a guy who basically uh, ex FBI guy who's going to who can get into companies and basically a company. Saboteur, uh, and so you, the, so you got these other critiques throughout the movie about the you know basically the shady side of government, yeah. uh, and basically the stuff is this product that's like a, plugged as a health health food kind of thing. It's this white stuff. It's it's a dessert replacement, but people are replacing all their meals with it. And so clearly <laughs> there's some red flags. No one and no one at the, is it the what's the company that uh, drug enforcement office the DEA? No one no one can tell you what's in it. It's like McDonald's. Yeah. It's a secret. Oh, FDA FDA rather, yeah. and it's a secret with the ingredient. And, you know, as he gets deeper, we start to see that this is probably some sort of alien type, you know, substance that no one really can account for what it's going to do. And then there's some really terrific practical effect moments that are just uh, some terrible doubling. There's a doubling scene where Moriarty is standing there watching uh, the, f- the stuff on fire. And it'll cut to a reverse where you've never seen two doubles who look less <laughs> like Moriarty in this way. It's kind of amazing. And you don't care because you're watching the stuff on fire. You're right. like, I don't care if it's a good double. Right. Uh, but it's a really entertaining movie. It has all the hallmarks of all his best work. But it, but it, he really goes after something. Like you feel like almost kind of like Sam Fuller. Like he's almost like a journalist who's going to, yeah, I'm going to give you a good time, but I'm also going to cut the legs right under yeah, yeah. you know this uh, this product but uh it's a super fun movie it has i i would say the last arc of it once servina comes in I have no idea what that movie. <laughs> it's like got this little fifteen minute segment at the end where you're like, "That is a, a totally different uh, uh, film," but you know, I, I, I forgive it because it's such a it's such a good time. That's great. So yeah, so that's that anti consumer America, especially the kind of commercials of that time period oh, yeah. where everything's like yeah. aerobics and yeah. people. Eat. It's just to me, it's a it's yeah. a really great time. Good stuff. I well, imagine you've met Larry, right? Oh, yeah. I know him very well. I, I would think so. He's yeah, a yeah, great yeah. guy. Yeah. yeah, super funny, super smart. Yeah. Okay, I have a movie to, okay, to share all with right. you. Okay. Adam's, Adam's number five. What do okay. we got? I am going. So, do, how does this work? Do we each have five, or do we what? do five total? We go each around, and so you've got time to. We'll like, try and be quicker on this. Uh, no yeah, problem. But. All right. So, here's a movie that I'm going to mention to you that is, to me, one of the great satires of all time, and also a very underrated film. It's called The President's Analyst. Hmm. This man is a super specialist in the field of super egos. He is the head man. He is the head man of head men and has been selected to treat none other than the head of state. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this mild-mannered man of the mind is the president's analyst. If I were an analyst, which I am, I would say I was rapidly turning into a paranoid personality, which I am. Honey, why don't you just quit? I can't. I know too much. They'd, They'd never let me get away. 
That was on my list. I do not I even know this movie. It's so great. It is. It stars James Coburn. Good oh. pick. It was directed by Theodore J. Thickle. Is that how you say his name? Let me look. Hold on. Let me just make sure. He mostly did television. His, uh, uh, yeah, Theodore J. Flicker. Excuse me. I apologize. Flicker. He, this is really his only big movie uh and james coburn plays a psychiatrist it's talk about a movie that is relevant today okay <laughs> james coburn plays a psychiatrist and this is cold there's like smack dab in the middle of the cold war like 1960s like uh, 1967 is when it came out right uh the president of the united states is depressed okay <laughs> and james coburn for whatever reason is chosen by the united states government to come to the white house to give the president of the United States psychotherapy uh, because <laughs> he, he is, he yes, is yes. not capable of doing his job effectively. The president isn't. Uh, and it, it's affecting his performance as, a, as, a, as the leader of the free world. So the president uh, and uh, James Coburn have some therapy sessions and the president makes great strides and is feeling much better. And he's very thankful to James Coburn for his work. But now... The government is concerned that James Coburn has been exposed to some secrets that they feel are a threat to have out there in the world. So the the CIA or whatever government agency, yeah, I think they have a different name. Yeah, right? they're they sort of parroting, <laughs> right? Uh, satirizing, I yes, would say. Yes. Uh, decides they need to assassinate James Coburn. Meanwhile, the Russians. Knowing that James Coburn now has a head full of the president's deepest, darkest secrets, wants to kidnap him, right, uh, to extract these secrets. So now you've got both world powers after this poor schmuck shrink, and he's just trying his best to survive. It's hilarious. It's, I can't believe I haven't even heard, and I love Coburn. And so by the way, is like a, it's very uh, much in the same sort of... Uh, Terry Southern vibe. I was gonna say as Strangelove. Uh, Strange Love. Yeah. It's yeah. really got the same sort of similar vibe. Great movie. Yeah. You gotta check it out. Was this Adam was this close to my <laughs> list? I'm so glad you picked it. That's great. Yeah, you pulled that out of the ether. I don't even see that written on your. Uh, it's not on my list. <laughs> so you, uh, that's good. <laughs> that's I, I think you got to go with that gut vibe. That is a great poll. <laughs> that's fun. Um, okay, I'm gonna go to the 60s. Actually, 1967 myself. Uh, I'm gonna do a little movie called David Holzman's Diary. Great, oh, great, great. Movie, yeah. yeah. My life. My life, my life, though ordinary enough, seems to haunt me in uncommon ways. It seems to come to me from somewhere else. Somewhere. And I'm try I've been trying to understand it, but it seems that I can't get it. So, uh... The uh, noted French wit, Jean-Luc Godard, said, uh, what is film? Film is truth 24 times a second. So I thought that if I put it all down on film and I run it back and forth, and I put my thumb on it and I stop it when I want to, then I got everything. I got it all. I should get it all. I should get it all. I should get the meaning. I should understand it. So this is what this is going to be. Uh, this is this. I'm going to make a diary, like uh, the famous Lulu's diary, uh, my diary. So this for me was the first mockumentary I ever saw. 
uh, starring L.M. Kit Carson, directed and I think written by Kit Carson and Jim McBride, who would go on to do the Breathless remake in 83. And it's really interesting because it's very much of its time. It's It feels, to me... I, I think it's the kind of movie that should play in film classes with mm. Breathless mm-hmm. and that sort of thing because it's it's just such an interesting... Basically, this guy, played by Kit Carson, decides he wants to document his own life so that he can figure some things out. So he starts filming himself. He's got like a, one of those cameras. I forget what kind it was called, uh, but it was one of those cameras that was available... And you could carry it around with you. Oh, uh, it's the, the the video portapex. Something like I think that. Sony, yeah, the video okay. artists were using it at yeah, the time. But yeah, but so he's got a Nagra, he's got his camera, and he starts filming himself. And he starts filming people he's interacting with. And he starts filming his girlfriend, which goes very poorly because she's not into that at all. And so you have this movie where he's just sort of examining his daily life. He's just lost his job. So he's kind of wandering around his neighborhood with the camera. He'll put a fisheye lens on it for a little bit, just mess around. Um, There's actually a really great scene where he just talks to this woman in a car for about 10 minutes. That's just great. Um, This movie is totally ripped off by Roman Coppola for CQ, Uh. which he freely acknowledges the the stuff where Jeremy um, Jeremy Davies, Davies yeah. so Jeremy Davies character in CQ which is another movie I love is filming himself in very much the similar way and I've listened to the commentary to CQ just on director's commentary level and he's saying yeah yeah I ripped that off <laughs> so this is more of Paul's personal movie and uh, again since this whole film is uh, very much uh, you know, quoting from all sorts of films that have made an impression on me this uh, is a bit of some good Godard films like uh, Femme Mariée or two or three things I know about her or uh, Masculine Femina as well as uh, David Holzman's Diary which is an American film that uh, uh, is about a young guy making a film about himself and so these were the influences that uh, seeped into it. And it's great because it is a great movie but it's just a really interesting statement. It's just one of those weird things where it sort of folds on to itself and it's uh, it's an examination of what was going on at the time in terms of documentary filmmaking very run and gun and but it also is just kind of like this weird commentary on this guy's life and what it's all about i don't know i just it's it's really neat he has sort of a kind of a breakdown towards the end have you seen it oh yeah, yeah i worked yeah, I at facets and it was a facets release oh was it uh-huh it also nice. reminds me a little bit of nanny moretti vibe and some of his stuff facets he, in chicago chicago no yeah. shit yeah yeah, yeah. So, i'm from okay. chicago oh yeah no I, I heard just before I did, yeah yeah i was out there for a couple years working. i used to go to facets in high school constantly yeah nice. do you know vernon Tan- tanjay uh, he wouldn't have been there when okay, i was there yeah, yeah. Uh, Charles Coleman was running the Cinematheque, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, but that was one of their titles that like, went rented a lot. It was That's a great awesome. film. No, like but Nanny Moretti, uh, Dear Diary, or Chow Diary, it, it reminds me of that kind of vibe. He's a great Italian director, but kind of same kind of playfulness. And yeah, no, I'm, I, I really enjoy that. I haven't seen it in a long time, but it's a good one. So. Yeah, yeah, I rewatched it. Great. Uh, so I've, I've been teaching a film for about 10 years, and I've never had a student give me a movie. I've been showing movies to students forever. And it was my birthday this year, and a student came up to me. Uh, uh, thanks, Eli. Uh, uh, and he goes, you're going to love this movie. And it sat on my shelf for the last like two months until Sadar came up. Uh, and that movie was SOB. Blake Edwards, the man who gave the world the Pink Panther, then went on to create a perfect 10, knows everything there is to know about Hollywood. All right, quiet now on a bell. That's why he wants to destroy it. The funniest way possible. 
Lorimar presents Lake Edwards, S.O.B. A simple movie about ordinary people who do ordinary things. I breed armadillos. Okay. Stay on the beach, huh? Sure. But most of all, it's about a man who's one crazy guy. By Blake Edwards. Fantastic movie. Okay, this movie, and because Terry Southern's come up, I've never seen a movie not not written by Terry Southern that reminds me more yeah. of the deplorable kind of nature of humanity yeah. that he could nail. And this is one, I, obviously, you straight away hear the title, and you go, oh, son of a bitch, but it's not. It's And it comes later in the script where one of them just goes, standard operational bullshit. Yeah, yeah. And about movies. <laughs> but also you'll see, by the end of this movie, the genesis of For Weekend at Bernie's. Of course. I mean, the, which is a movie, I love Ted Kutcheff, love Weekend at Bernie's, but oh, man, the, the last like 12, 12 minutes of this movie is True. literally. True. But this movie is so eccentric and so personal, it seems to Blake Edwards, you can see Blake channeling his Hollywood experiences. I think I think oh, Wild right. Rovers was one of them. One oh, of the really? experience he had on Wild Rovers and one other movie are, are the, kind of the direct experience. But then also, uh, obviously, he's married to, uh, don't let me. Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews. And, and that's, it seems like that's part of what they're saying in this film. Like, uh, so basically, the basic gist of this, I, I'd never seen this. I'd seen uh, the cover I knew well. Uh, so it's basically a Hollywood director is just, and it opens with his epic, and you're watching these giant sets, and it's a musical, and it's very chaste and very kid-like with toys and, yeah. and Julie Andrews uh, singing. And it's, it could be its own movie. It's very beautiful. And then you realize it was a complete bomb, uh, a total disaster, and the director, what's his name, Felix Farmer. Um, <laughs> Felix Farmer, it, it, the because it's been a bomb, it's one of the first of his career. He's now suicidal, and and this is the part that's a little it's a little dated. Some of the over the topness of his his suicidal streak, which lasts for the first maybe twenty five thirty minutes, and everyone's trying to kind of you know talk him around and uh, you know try to get on with the business. But the guy is kind of at the end. His relationship with Julie Andrews is over, and. Basically, what happens, and you meet these just, fa- I mean, uh, especially the performance of um, William Holdman. Uh, well, yeah, William Holden, sorry, as Cully in this is gives, and unfortunately, it's his last role. And I've always just loved William Holden, and in this, he is like you just know that guy existed in Hollywood. He's he's like kind of almost a fixery kind yeah. of guy somewhere. You don't really know what his role is, but yeah. everyone he has a good rapport with everyone. He's good with ladies. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, in real life, he hit his head after this drinking too much and, and, <laughs> so and died. So um, but he he's fantastic in this. So basically, uh, it's kind of just this kind of mess of of characters and all the people who don't make movies but make movies yeah. and that's what I like about it. it's not about the producers yeah. and the directors it's really all those people the weird doctors yeah. who, who service oh, people with drugs great and, performance oh yeah it's fantastic Robert Preston yeah Preston and, 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 and uh, Blake Edwards had made so many movies by this point yeah this is like yeah because I mean, it's 81 he, if it's, anybody could could lampoon his experiences yeah. making movies and, and the different characters you encounter in Hollywood yeah. and, and only he could only make a movie like SOB after the success of a movie like 10, which has been his previous movie, right, which, which was, was a ginormous yeah. hit. Yeah. So then he's able to make this insane Hollywood. I mean, and SOB was a huge bomb. It's like his uh, Fellini totally. movie or something. Yes, it's, it's so, his eight and a half. Yeah, That's exactly right. And yeah. by the way, it's funny you should mention that because so many filmmakers, when they get an opportunity to do what they want because of a big success, they will make their eight and a half. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, there's totally. a great uh, podcast out there recently with Friedkin and Del Toro in conversation. I think it's, mm-hmm. I don't know, Tallcast or one of those sites. And Friedkin's big thing is like, you know, the, all the worst mistakes are made right after success. Yes. Success is the biggest killer because yes. as soon as you're on that high, you win that off. 
Oscar, the next thing you do is doomed it's because true. you're going to do it out of stupidity <laughs> and arrogance. And I really, that, that was but, great. But, I mean, but really, when you think about it, like, so, I mean, and I love some of these movies and I don't like other movies, yeah. but Stardust Memories is Woody Allen's Eight yeah. and a Half. Yeah. Yep. All That Jazz is Bob Fosse's yep. Eight and a Half. Yep. Yeah. Alex in, Wonder- in Wonderland is Paul Mazursky's Eight and a Half. Yeah. That, I almost picked that. <laughs> they, they are, it's pretty good. And we've talked about Stardust yeah, before because sure. that's one of my favorite Woody Allen movies. I love it. It's Stardust really great. great. And all these movies are great sort of observations by people who know the stories. Yeah. Of what it takes to make yeah. movies, you know but they're only—it's—it's I mean? it's like they're only really made for people who are in the movie business. It's true, and that's why they're bombs because the true. public don't have that access. It's true. Uh, but the fun part about this movie, where it really just becomes such a, a fun movie, and you know there's more more going on behind the scenes, is where he realizes he's got this movie. It's a dud. They're pulling the prints, and then he has an idea of how to make it relevant. The director, who is suicidal at this point, and he realizes he, the way to make it is to turn it into an erotic movie and try to get the lead <laughs> actress, which is also his wife. That's and also probably the most chaste image in real life of any actress in the history of movies uh, because she was the hills are alive with the sound of music. Sure, and Mary Poppins. Uh, and Mary Poppins. She's satirizing herself. Yeah, yeah. She's and really uh, I think Don't Johnny really Carson, boy. when this movie came out, Johnny Carson uh, sang a little song and he said, um, thanks for reminding us uh, that the hills are still alive. <laughs> when he, because the whole movie becomes about her showing her breasts. Yes. And if and if she will show her breasts, he's like, we can get that money back and people will come in droves, we'll make yeah. 10 million. So he, he basically buys the movie back from the producers uh, you know takes all the risk uh, obviously he's going through divorce there's so many other things happening but then at, at the heart it becomes about a director willing to go to anything to turn a failure into something more yeah, yeah. and and it goes to kind of tragic lengths and that's it's surprising and in, in it shifts in tones yeah. and it isn't an easy movie I could yeah. see why it's deeply eccentric I remember looking afterwards realizing it, it was nominated for multiple like Razzies for worst film and oh. it also was nominated for Golden Globes and I'm like I think that sums it up yeah. I think it is truly a mixture of those two yeah, polls sure. which just makes for a totally unique uh, satire yep. but I, I do love I love where it goes and I think it has images of a certain person holding clutching cans of film at yeah, the, you, yeah. it's it's <laughs> iconic I don't want to ruin it for people but it's it's it, one of those things to be it's discovered it's a great movie and that's a great choice and Shelley Winters and just everyone's Fantastic. in it yeah. uh, I can't remember is ridiculous. who plays the um, uh, Robert Vaughn plays yeah. the Main he's producer, great. and he's, he's just yeah. you know you know he's he's playing the guy. The kid stays in the picture. Somebody like yeah, that yeah. perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, no. Anyway, a, a super case. fun and and just on the heels of it, I was gonna. This is one I, I need to recommend. I'm not gonna go into it, but um, it's my favorite movie ever about Hollywood, and because I picked a Hollywood one, and it's a short film uh, by Sage Stallone, and it's called Vic, oh, uh, starring right. Clue oh, Gulliger. Yeah, yeah. And great you can movie, actually yeah. buy this film through Grindhouse releasing, and it's really Clue Gulliger. Just in case it never comes up again, it's one of my favorite performances of all time. It's like, great. Listen, would you be interested? Yes, I would. Okay. Yes, sir, I would. Great. Uh, when are you going to start filming? Okay, well, we're going to start shooting in a couple of weeks. But this is the thing. Uh, Vic, I need you to come in and read. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute. You want me to come in and read? Well, yeah, I don't need to see you read. It's, just, it's the politics of this particular hey, look, I don't know who the hell you are. But I haven't read for a fucking part in 30 years, my friend. Whoever you are, you got a lot of nerve calling me up in the middle of the goddamn night. It's basically about an actor who's aged out, more or less out of the business, offered a role uh, to come in to read for a role with the guy who's basically was meant to be Quentin Tarantino at the yeah. time. It was written for the hot director yeah. who could get anyone. I think Vincent Gallo was going to play it at one point from what I had heard, but uh, ends up being by um, uh, Clue's son, Tom, who's a great actor. And, uh, and it's just this amazing film where Clue 
I've never seen a more live actor than what Clue does in that 30 he's minutes. Great. He's and great. he goes through the rigor of going through the audition per uh, the kind of just the brutality of what it is yeah. to audition, especially yeah. when you're older. You'll see a lot of other actors you recognize auditioning yeah. and the kind of humiliation of what it means to be an actor when no one gives a shit anymore, even yeah. though this director does, no one else cares and he's trying to pull his life together. It's 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 really one of the most exhilarating 30 minutes of filmmaking I've ever seen. Yeah, it's great. And a total tragedy yeah. because Sage is oh, with the world and probably would have really gone on sad. to do something special. Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure I plug that on the heels in case I never get to talk about it. Great movie. Okay, I'm going to give you another movie of mine. Let's do it. It's also a I want it to be one of your movies now. (laughs) (laughs) You're about to get one of your actual films. Um, Okay, here's a a satire that I love. Um, It's also a mock documentary. Nice. It's called Man Bites Dog. Very nice. Tu vois, il y a un barème quand tu le laisses d'un corps, c'est-à-dire tu fais trois fois son poids, normalement un homme moyen, comme cette victime-ci, c'est trois fois son poids. Mais sinon, par exemple, ça change, hein, tu as pour les enfants ou pour les nains, ça change. Pour un enfant, c'est... il est plus léger, un enfant, hein. c'est deux fois son poids, c'est quatre fois son poids. Comment Great choice. Love that film. Um, 1992, I believe, yeah. directed Belgium. by three Belgian guys. Yeah. It is, so for people who don't know it, it's a documentary crew is following a serial killer as he goes about his adventures <laughs> and the whole rationale with the uh of the crew is that we are not contributing to anything illegal we are merely documenting what is already occurring yeah it's going to happen anyway it's going to happen yeah. anyway so it is just merely our job to be flies on the wall we're it's cinema verte what happens is happening uh, regardless of us and we're capturing the, the, the realities yeah. of the brutality of life. And little by little, inch by inch, they start to get sucked into <laughs> the responsibility of some of the murders, you know, just by little, you know, can you just help me get this body <laughs> all, just out of yeah. this doorway? I mean, because he's also really charming and funny. He's so funny. <laughs> oh my and God. it's, he's yeah. so charming. And, uh, and before you know it, they are full on participants in <laughs> yeah. these heinous, yeah. heinous crimes. And one of the things that's so fascinating about the movie is that it is so shamelessly brutal. Yeah. I mean, just ugly brutal, but still somehow, and I don't know how they did it, hilarious. I mean, you're watching... The blackest of comedy. You know what blackest. it reminds me? Uh, the it's only about other the movie, blackest comedy I can think Well, of. the only other movie where I've sat in the theater and I was cackling, but the theater was dead silent yeah. that same kind of black humor is killer joe by yes Brinkin. okay i remember exactly. just dying at that humor but absolutely. people couldn't you know it's so dark absolutely yeah this movie has one of the most brutal rape scenes mm. i've ever seen played entirely for laughs you can't bl- i mean because when you talk about the concept of a brutal rape scene being played for laughs you, whoever's listening is thinking yeah, it's already what's off. wrong with these yeah, people over, laughing yeah. at this horrible rape yeah. there's nothing funny about it yeah but I promise you, see this movie because yeah. the filmmakers are fully aware yeah. of what they're doing and about and how this stuff is being portrayed. But they just they walk that line so brilliantly. There's this great sequence where because <laughs> the film crew that's following them is shooting on film, and then they encounter the film the the killer encounters another competing killer. That's right. Who's <laughs> yeah, also right. being followed by another camera crew. <laughs> 
But that camera crew is a video camera crew, and so they're convinced that they're a sub. They're 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 sub professional. Wow! So it was comparing the formats before yes, that was exa- a thing. Exactly. That's hilarious. And so then they kill the other camera crew. Yeah. You know? That's right. We're it's look- so funny. Did you ever see a, a movie that really reminds me of that I spoke about a little bit be- time before? I can't remember which episode it was. Uh, the Hungarian film The Cremator. I haven't seen. Okay. It. Dark as black okay. humor. Probably even darker, oh, but wow. maybe not as funny. Okay, but okay. I think you'd be right up your alley. I want to see. So, it. Yeah, I've I think, heard of it. I've never seen it. Yeah, I think it might finally be on the Criterion. It's uh, probably on Filmstruck. I'm just it, looking for Man Bites Dog. Right but now. it's yeah, it's something. And I'll tell you, with Man Bites Dog, that's one of those movies where every few years I think to myself like, what did Man's they do by, afterwards? Man Bites Dog is on Filmstruck. So oh, Filmstruck. Oh, good. Right. Please right. check yeah, it yeah. out. But I always think to myself like, well, I wonder what they made after that, and I don't know if I know. I don't either. Yeah. And uh, the poster when I first saw the poster, the poster is of the lead guy, Benoit, I think is his name. He's he's shooting a gun toward the bottom of the frame, so you don't see what's uh, you don't see what's beneath the frame line, but you see a splatter of blood coming up and a baby pacifier. Oh, that's right. <laughs> it's it's just shamelessly brutal, yeah. Yeah. but so funny. Part of what makes it funny is that it is just so in your face brutal. Yeah, it's just so unapologetically brutal. But also part of what makes it work is he is so funny. Yeah, yeah. His yeah, yeah. performance is so hilarious. Anyway, some movies are just like walking a tightrope. It's, exactly. Yeah. I love that movie. That's a yeah. great choice. That is good. I totally forgot about it, too. Adam, That's you're good. very good at this game. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, you're invited. <laughs> well. um, okay. Um, Stan in the 60s. I'm going to go with Bob Rafelson's first movie, Head, from 1960. Oh. They can't be the Marx Brothers. They're too young. Columbia Pictures presents The Monkeys. Mickey, Davy, Mike, Peter in Head. That's right, head. What's it all about? Only Victor Mature's hairdresser knows for sure. Are you kidding? <laughs> Looks like a nice guy and I like his smile. Go on, see if you can hit me just once, just once. Don't, Davy. Please don't. Head is the most extraordinary adventure western comedy love story, mystery drama, musical documentary satire ever filmed. Edited by Monty Hellman, so Monty stays alive. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's one of his first big editing gigs. And written by Jack. Jack. That's right. That's that's probably why Monty got that. Yeah, exactly. Of course. (laughs) Old buddies, yeah. Yeah, it's so. This is uh, obviously the the monkeys were a phenomenon created by Rafelson mm. uh, for TV, and they just decided to sort of extend it into the movie area. Um, but it was really interesting. I was watching some documentaries about him talking about the movie. I mean, it's 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 crazy satirical because it's a send up of let's see what, what like westerns, war movies, boxing movies, gangster movies, commercials. He does and the, their own success. And them, yes, yeah. on top of it. Why did I make this film is a very complicated question. I don't want to do this anymore, man. Oh, these fake arrows and this junk and the fake trees, Bob, I'm through. Oh, stink, man. My life in the creation of the monkeys as a television show, as a record act, as a live appearance group, had been completely obsessive for two to three years. And everybody said, well, then why would you want to make uh, this movie? 
get away from it, do something different. This is not what you want to do. And I mean, uh, uh, Steve and Bert, everybody counseled me against it, my wife, everybody. I felt that there was one thing missing from the monkey mythology. First of all, they hadn't made a movie, and that, that would complete all forms of media. And secondly, I felt like, well, there's a truth that hasn't been told, and that is the truth of the accusations about the monkeys not singing their own songs, all the so-called adult assault on their sensibility. So I thought that I should make a movie about that. In other words, expose the monkeys and my relationship to the monkeys as truthfully as I possibly could, although in a very abstract manner. Um, it has one of my favorite openings ever to any movie, Brilliant. which is just this crazy, weird setup of a bridge being dedicated, and you're just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> There's a big ribbon stretched across the bridge, and then suddenly the monkeys come charging through, and uh, Mickey Dolan's busts through the ribbon almost like it's a race, like it's a finish line, but they're being chased which we come to find out the movie's kind of circular um but then he jumps off a bridge lands in the water and it goes all psychedelic and it plays the dolphin song which is one of their best songs Love that song. yeah it's great they, they the really neat thing about it is they don't go for all the hits and I, i'm a big monkeys fan yeah me too uh and they don't play you know last train to clarksville they don't play stepping stone none of that stuff they, they play some other more obscure stuff but it is just such it feels like uh, you know, new wave influenced. I felt like this was an opportunity to do something when it came to the movie, but even in the television show, that was a continuum of the American avant-garde way of making movies. With the monkeys of all things, nothing could be more uh, contradictory in a way. That would be something like uh, making an ice cream cone out of mud. I wrote in the first script that film was not a holy parchment and was to be ripped and shredded and run backwards and painted on and everything. And that's something that I had, uh, I, I think I had picked up somewhat from uh, uh, experimental filmmakers. And I watched a lot of that sort of thing in the 50s, like Brackage, like Anger. Norm McLaren used to paint on the film. And all of this became part of the dictum for how we were going to make the monkeys show and, to a certain extent, the movie as well. It feels like a Richard Lester movie. Very much so. Right? Yeah, very like, much so. I mean, he's very much, I yeah. mean, they're obviously aware of Hard sure, Day's Night, sure. clearly, you know, so. But well, the show was kind of a, a, a I don't want to say a, it was a ripoff of Hard Day's Night in a way. Yeah. But, uh, but Ra Ravelson got, I mean, excuse me, but Lester got pretty satirical, uh, and uh, they they got super satirical in, with this movie. I, I agree. Mm. Yeah, it's really great. Unfortunately, it's not on Filmstruck. You'd have to buy it on the Criterion, I think the BBS box set, which is an incredible set. If you don't own that set, so much good stuff oh, yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah, uh, Some of my favorite uh, Bob Ravelson, Ravelson movies. Um, but anyway, it's a really trippy movie, um, but it's very funny and strange and, I don't know, exhilarating to watch. I just was... Mm. I was really, I don't know. Uh, it's got some really great supporting performances. Terry Gar, yeah, Timothy Carey is amazing. Mm. Oh, yeah, he's always fun. <laughs> amazing, Timothy yeah. Carey. Um, Annette Funicello shows yeah, up. Yeah, uh, Victor Mature. Actually, there's one oh. of the best sequences in the movie, and I have a great story, a clip of Rafelson talking about you know story conferencing with Jack Nicholson that, that there was acid involved, obviously, <laughs> and and Jack saw the movie in his mind as being sort of structured uh, like an acid trip. And we began to write the thing. And we were writing it in Harry Dean Stanton's basement that Jack slept in. 
one of us would go on to a rant about, okay, now this is what's happening, and uh, the monkey's doing this, and then they go into water, and the water changes color, and then there's porpoises. And the other one would uh, sit and say, yeah, that's good, that's good, okay, let's get that down. And then it became a difficult task as to which of us was going to write it down, because we usually told too stoned, and it was a miserable task having to write it down. It was great fun imagining the things. And at one point during the course of the movie, Jack said, so what do you think? I said, Jesus Christ, Jack, I'm sorry. I, I, I got lost. I was trying to imagine the darkest thing on the planet. And he said, yeah, well, what would that be? I said, that, that would be Victor Mature's hair. He said, Victor Mature's hair? That's brilliant. That's, that's going in. We, the whole movie takes place in Victor Mature's hair. So, of course, there's an amazing scene where the monkeys land in Victor Mature's hair, and they suck them out with a vacuum cleaner. They're like his dandruff. Yes, they're yeah. like dandruff. It's like a dandruff commercial. Oh, my God, it's so good. Um, but, yeah, so, so he just – there's a lot of really interesting stuff where he talks about being influenced by um, Brackage and some other experimental filmmakers, which you can see in there. It's just a great mix. I, I think he's an incredible filmmaker. Oh, yeah. I think it's a really remarkable start. And for people to, I don't know, maybe write it off as like, oh, that's the monkeys movie. Don't do that. Just yeah. go watch this. It's a psychedelic comedy, but there's a lot more going on. I agree with that. I think it's a phenomenal film. Yeah. It's a very biting topical film especially when you consider that oh in the in one of the opening scenes where there's a monkey's concert and the fans are charging the stage yeah and it's like teeny bopper you know monkey mania and then they start tearing them apart and then they're they're dummies yeah and yeah. their heads are being ripped <laughs> off and, it's crazy and it's great and then there's all those tvs and you see uh, all the, sh the shots of like television commercials and then you see vietnam war i mean it was really of its time mm -hmm. but really really uh really smart and it funny. still works it still yeah. kind of works i think even even for a movie from 1968 I'm going back to Dark, Dark Black. And this is the most recent movie. And uh, I, I can never get sick of trying to recommend this to people because I it didn't have a great, um, a big ad campaign or budget to kind of get the word out. And it's I think it's one of the funniest, uh, darkest films and one of the best satires of recent years. And that is uh, Cheap Thrills. Violet and I came up with this idea for an awesome night. What do we have to do? $250,000. This one is for us. you got to win it. Okay. $500 to whoever can hold their breath the longest. $800, whoever can shit inside their house. $200, whoever touches that stripper's ass with a slap. You will never forget this night. 500 bucks if you hit him first. I just want to go home. You're a real piece of shit, you know it. So no matter how much money's in that box, I'm not sucking his attacks. Uh, directed by right. Evan Katz, yeah, right. uh, written by Trent Haga. It, it is just one of those films that's so smart, but never gets bogged down with the idea. And it's the darkness of the comedy. It's not for everyone. I, I have uh, shown this to people who is too dark and they couldn't handle it. And I've shown it to other people who are just like dying and always shocked that they'd never heard of it. We take for granted because we're in film circles and we're friends with certain people involved in these types of movies that everyone knows. This film had no plot. I mean, it was an Alamo Draft House release and really just no one saw this no, film. No, it's true. It, it's, um, but what it's really about as a, as a film is 
and and I think again it might be me looking through the current lens, but it's it really is another capitalism run amok story. But I think what it's really at the heart of it is it's the death of the middle class. It's the death of the middle class dream. You know, you've got a character Pat Healy who's just one of my favorite performances of the last decade is this role that he plays in this film. He's he, the 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 journey he gets in the the arc in this movie is brilliant. He's basically a, a dad, a new dad with a baby uh, and a wife, and he's got a shitty job and his. <laughs> He might get evicted out of his place, and then he loses his job, and he goes to a bar, and he's like, just he he can't face going home. He's done everything right that you're meant to do, in quote marks, right? You're meant to do this to to have this family, even though he wants to be a writer. And he runs into an old buddy of his uh, from high school, who's a bit of a thug now, and is like somebody who, you know, kind of like a debt collector, and definitely has had a different uh, life up until this point. And the two of them are kind of commiserating, and he he doesn't know how to go home this night because he doesn't know how to break the news to his wife. And then uh, there's some rich uh, asshole uh, who's snorting coke in the bathroom, and then with a really hot, like half his age wife, <laughs> uh, played by the great comedian, what's his name, David um, David Keckner Keckner, and Sarah Paxton is uh, is the um, is the young wife, or maybe just girl, you don't really know. And it basically starts innocently enough where Keckner goes, oh, you know, I'll give you fifty bucks, whoever has the first shot, you know, drinks that shot. First, and they go, what do you mean? And by the uh, Healy's character so slow in the uptake, he doesn't even do it. And the other guy gets the 50 bucks. And then it's like, go slap that waitress ass for, you know, 100 bucks. And the other guy's very quick to do it because he's lived a life uh, doing kind of bad things for money, you know, breaking people's arms or whatever. And so it's, it comes a little more naturally. Whereas Pat Healy's very reticent, but he's a couple drinks in. And then he's like, you know what? This is my wife's birthday. I want to do something unique for her. Why don't you guys come with us for the night and we'll do some crazy stuff? And, you know, it's this idea of doing something for money and for cheap thrills, you know? And it just starts to escalate and it goes from very innocuous kind of, you know, uh, goofy things like that to really fucked up shit. And by the end of this movie, it's like just incredibly dark. And, and the darker it gets, the funnier it gets it, in that same way that Man Bites Dog. If you're on this train, when they really push to what these guys are having to do, and again, they're being they're being forced to change. And it's basically commenting like if you don't adapt to what the the, uh, the people above you are going to be like, you will get eaten. But if you want to be like us, you're going to have to eat someone else. Yeah. And it, and it's fascinating. So I think it was timing. You know, it came out right around. It's pre-Trump stuff. But what it is is it's that 1% stuff that was going. Whereas like, you know, 1% having all the wealth and 99% just eating the shit. Yeah. And, and it just it, – it's one of those films that was able to be really, to me, really political – but in a way that they never once talk about politics yeah, yeah. and it's funny and dark. And then Pat Healy's journey is a dark one, but you get it. You totally understand it and you'd go with him on that exact kind of trip. I, I really can't say enough. It's one of my favorite films of the last, like, uh, post-2000s. Yeah. And I, I, I might have mentioned it briefly in our 2000 call films, but to me it really does, needs it. It needs a little bolster. Absolutely. That's great. So it's a great movie. It, yeah. Great pick. Yeah, yeah, really fun. Great pick. What number am I on? You're number three. This is my third one. Yes. So I have three. So you I got have two more. After two more. That. I have two more after this. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. So. So don't don't blow your load too early. No. no exactly. Keep a good one. Wait. I've only done two so far. Yeah. Well, you have been talking about ours too. So yeah. That's what okay. Happens. It's, yeah. You it's did deceptive. Which President's one? analyst and man bites. Stone. That's all I've done so far. So far. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, here's one that I'm, I keep writing down ideas as we're talking. <laughs> I like I'm, this. I like I'm this. getting excited. This is good. All right. So there's a lot of. As we've discussed, and SOB is a great one. Yeah. A lot of great satires about Hollywood. Oh, yeah. And of course, I'm drawn to it because I love movies. So I'm going to tell you a couple honorable mentions yeah. as I work my way okay. up to the all one right, I'm right. going to this do next. Cool. That you're you're okay. definitely one of us. That's how we roll every week. Got to cram some more in this. So, of course, Sunset Boulevard is a great satire about Hollywood, maybe but maybe an over talked about one, but worth every 
moment that is discussed. And maybe about it. and maybe it's perfect because it's also a noir and it's, sure, it's many other sure. things. But yeah, it's a great one. It's, perfect, it's a yeah. great movie about great satire about Hollywood and about Hollywood failure, mm-hmm. about pursuing a, a dream and about. Uh, being uh, uh, aged out of a career like yeah, we talked about, yeah. I think that movie's a great one. And, and having Von Stroheim play a butler. Talk about like meta. That, oh, that a, is so... It's incredible. I mean, and Gloria Swanson and Von Stroheim together exactly. in a movie given they tried to make Queen game? Kelly. What about that card Oh my oh, God, yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Anyway. So, I mean, because when you consider yeah. the context of that, of yeah. Von Stroheim playing her butler, and you know the real story. Of and Queen then they Kelly, comment, yeah. yeah. And then they comment on, you know, who he was and yeah. who she was and why he's doing yeah, it. It's so painful yeah because it's so real and especially as we pursue our careers in this dog eat dog or as woody allen speaking of him has said it's worse it's dog doesn't return other dogs phone calls (laughs) kind of town you know what i mean (laughs) it's 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 brutal so that's an honorable mention that's not the one i'm yes one of the best films ever another another honorable mention a a satire about hollywood which we were talking about before yeah it and it it falls in the same category of you know just broken dreams. The, yeah. the, the 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 mecca of broken dreams is the day of the locust, right. which is one of my truly favorite movies of all time, yeah. based on the novel by Nathaniel, Nathaniel West. West. Yeah, yeah. Just movie about Hollywood fringe players and the and the lengths that they will go and the and the, uh, to to make it in this town and they and don't none of them have a shot and it's so depressing and yeah. it's so uh, uh but it's so and it's also funny you know yeah. it was, anyway so but the but the uh, but the one that I'm going to mention that is, here, here's the thing. This movie is set in Hollywood, but it is not a satire of Hollywood as much as it's, I wouldn't even know if you necessarily call it a satire, but it is a, it is definitely a Hollywood movie. So I'm going to put it in the same category. Okay. And that is The Long Goodbye. Oh. Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. Great. Now, the, oh, oh, I knew what I was going <laughs> to uh-huh. say. I was going to, I was going to um, liken the player. Yeah. I was going to talk about the player. Right, obviously. I had this yeah. all in my mind okay. planned. And I was going to talk about that being one of a, the great Hollywood satires. And yeah. then that was going to lead me into, so I, I got ahead of myself, okay. <laughs> uh, that the that Robert Altman made another one of what I think is yeah, a brilliant, but... if you can call it a satire. I'm just deciding it's a satire. I think you of, think the player so. I, I, no, the player is, for oh, sure. Oh, 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 but sure. I'm saying, I'm saying The Long Goodbye is a, a satire because... It, it comments on I was just as say. it reinvents the, the noir private mm-hmm. detective movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for those who don't know, uh, it's a, a classic. Uh, it's uh, one of our, we both love it. Yeah, it's a brilliant classic brilliant story. Movie. Brilliant movie. I happen to know, so, so directed by Robert Altman, starring counterculture icon, as we were talking about, Elliot Gould, uh, a classic film noir uh, private detective movie, but for the hippie culture. And I happen to know a behind-the-scenes story about it. The, the fellow who funded my very first film is a guy named Elliot Kastner, old-time producer oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. who produced Where Eagles Dare. He produced Harper with uh, uh, Paul Newman, produced tons of you know Brando films, and, and I mean, just classic, legendary producer. And he produced The Long Goodbye. And I told him when I first met him, I said, you produced one of my favorite movies of all time, The Long Goodbye. He said, I hate that movie. Hmm. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, uh, Altman bait and switched me. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He said, I, you know, I, I signed him on to do a Philip Marlowe hard-boiled private detective movie. And that's what he said he was going to do. And he turned around and gave me a hippie movie. <laughs> I said, but it's a, it's a, it's not only is it a great movie, it reinvents the whole genre. Yeah. That's a piece of shit. <laughs> wow. Didn't make any money. <laughs> oh. 
I said to him, I, listen, yeah, humbly, I think you're wrong. It's one of the great movies of all time. Yeah. Uh, I think it's one of, or if not the earliest performance by uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who oh, plays yeah. a bodyguard. Yep. Yeah, uh, a great scene. Uh, yeah, great scene. And, and Sterling Hayden, one Sterling of his Hayden great last performances. Speaking of, yeah, speaking Comes of, back uh, to Strangelove, yeah, Jack T. Ripper. He is brilliant in it. Yeah. I love I love the movie. The, the uh, I don't want to give away the, the, the plot points, but all I will say is to people who have not seen it, if you like film noir and if you like private detective movies, if you like that hard-boiled, nihilistic, you know, uh, Hollywood noir, but if you want to see it completely reinvented yeah. in a way that you, you've never seen before, you must watch The Long Goodbye. Yeah, or if you love cats. Hey, uh, excuse me, I don't see any curry brand cat food. So what? Curry brand cat food. Hey, it happens to be the only kind of food. Please. Yeah, curry brand, C O. You are. Oh, oh, we're all of that. Curry Why Brand. Don't you get this, Mr. All this shit is the same anyway. Oh, yeah? You don't happen to have a cat by any chance. What do I need a cat for? I got a girl. Yeah. Ha uh ha. -huh. He's got a girl and I got a cat. Yes, of course. <laughs> a great relationship. And also just great LA photography. Like great a, LA locations yes. that you will just want to go visit straight away. Absolutely. Great LA photography. Up where his apartment yeah, is. On, yeah, yeah. on top of which, one of my favorite uses of score in any movie. Beautiful. Just Absolutely. From the grocery music version of the great, score great. to like the guy on the piano. Yeah. And, the, yeah. Oh. and, you know, in a way, because it has such a sort of, because it does have that sort of hippie, Altman, sort of uh, uh, iconoclastic style to it the meander how yeah, it just the meander, meanders yeah. through it, it, yeah. it that to me it, it's funny because of that yeah. you know i mean uh, gould is funny yeah. altman is funny they're just funny people so their their humor is infused in what otherwise is on paper a straight because yeah, it's still dark north road still yeah, very dark still, absolutely the story very dark. Is yeah. dark yeah but i think it's brilliant i mm. love it anytime i catch it i can't stop watching it the long goodbye. Yeah, it seems like a satire in L.A. Not yes. just Hollywood, yes. but L.A. That is a great point. Yeah, that so is I think a great that's point. part of it. So, yeah. so, so, yes, the 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 honorable honorable mentions that I mentioned before were were definitely uh, satires on filmmaking, yeah. uh, but the long goodbye is absolutely a satire on L.A. Yeah. and I I, yeah. I, I I love it. Yeah, excellent choice, Adam. One of my top five movies. Great movie. Yeah, thank you. So thank much. you. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm gonna go um, Hollywood satire. Good. Uh, <laughs> which one's what? Which one's left? Uh, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. We have oh, not yes. talked Thank enough you. about Preston Sturges on the show. And oh, I think I know what you're going to say. Yeah, I think you do. Yes. Uh, I'm going to go with Sullivan's Travels. From oh my God! I love that movie so much. <laughs> As do the Coen Brothers. Yes, they do. I'm going to find out how it feels to be in trouble, without friends, without credit, without checkbook, without Dave. Hello. And I'll go with you. How could I be alone if you're with me? Sullivan's Travels, the side-splitting story of a $4,000-a-week big shot who turns hobo for experience and gets more than he bargained for. You better drop me at the next corner and take this bus back where you stole it from. Don't talk nonsense. I left a note saying I was taking the car. Or did I? Be nice if you could remember. What do you suppose that is? Well, whatever it is, there's absolutely nothing they can do. Remember that. What did you say? I said there's absolutely nothing they can do. 
But I will say this weekend, I had the Criterion. I haven't seen it since a film class, and I'm not really a screwball guy in general. Only Not so much that I don't I like them. I think you could be more I, of a screwball I, I, I don't guy. search for them is what I'm saying. I but I'm just saying, I think you would like And them. he wrote to me like this weekend saying he was watching it, and I was like, you know what? I've got the Criterion right there. And I put it on, and I said, and I was in a bit of a funk. For whatever reason, you watch a lot of stuff, and I just was like, this just brought me so much joy. Absolutely. It's a brilliant film. And then the last 20 minutes are just, it's so biting. It's amazing it how that movie shifts tone oh, so completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You always forget. I was telling him, you forget about that third act. Yeah. yeah. Because that's where it really digs in. Yes. But I mean, for people that don't know, it's basically about a successful movie director named John L. Sullivan, played by Joel McRae, incredibly well. Like, what am I I yeah, fucking yeah. love Joel McRae. And he is, you know, made some successful comedies uh, with a little sex in them. Like, things like, I love the names of the movies Hey, Hey in the Hayloft. <laughs> Ants yeah. of Plants of 1939 yeah. or whatever, 1941. So his sort of studio executives are trying to push him to make his next movie. He wants to make a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is obviously where the Coen brothers got the name for their film. And it, But he wants to make it about human suffering. He wants to really sort of make it about the plight of the common man. But he, he doesn't feel like he's suffered enough. So he's going to go on the road and sort of become a hobo. Of course, I'm just a minor employee here, Mr. LeBrand. He's starting that one again. I wanted to make you something outstanding. Something you could be proud of. Something that would realize the potentialities of film as the sociological and artistic medium that it is. With a little sex in it. Something like... Something like Capra. I know. What's the matter with Capra? Look, you want to make a brother without that? Yes. Now, wait a minute. Then go ahead and make it. What you're getting, I can't afford to argue with you. That's a fine way to start a man out on a million-dollar production. You want it, you've got it. I can take it in the chin. I've taken it before. Not from me, you haven't. Not from you, Sully, that's true. Not with pictures like So Long Sarong, Hey Hey in the Hayloft, Ants and Your Plants of 1939, but they weren't about traps, lockouts, sweatshops, people eating garbage in alleys, and living in piano boxes and ash cans and and foy. They're about nice, clean young people who fell in love with laughter and music and legs. Now take that scene in Hey Hey in the Hayloft. But you don't realize conditions have changed. There isn't any work, there isn't any food. These are troublous times. What do you know about trouble? What do I know about trouble? Yes, what do you know about trouble? What do you mean, what do I know about trouble? Guess what I'm saying. You want to make a picture about garbage cans. What do you know about garbage cans? When did you eat your last meal out of one? Well, what's that got to do with it? He's asking you. You want to make an epic about misery. You want to show hungry people sleeping in doorways. The newspapers around them. You want to grind 10,000 feet of hard luck. And all I'm asking you is, what do you know about hard yes. luck? Yes. What do you mean, what do I know about hard luck? Don't you think no. I've... What? Yeah, I'm not. I saw the newspapers till I was 20, then I worked in a shoe store and put myself through law school at night. Where were you at 20? Well, I was in college. When I was 13, I supported three sisters and two brothers and a widowed mother. Where were you at 13? I was in boarding school. I'm sorry. Well, you don't have to be ashamed of it, Sully. That's the reason your picture's been so light, so cheerful, so inspiring. They don't stick with messages. That's why I paid you 500 a week when you were 24. 750 when you were 25. 1,000 when you were 26. When I was 26, I was getting 18. 2,000 when you were 27. I was getting 25 then. I just opened my shooting gun. 3,000 after thanks for yesterday. 4,000 after answering your I plans. suppose you're trying to tell me I don't know what trouble is. Yes. In a nice way, Sully. Well, you're absolutely right. I haven't any idea what it is. People always like what they don't know anything about. Certainly had a lot of nerve wanting to make a picture about human suffering. You're a gentleman to admit it, Sully. But then you are anyway. And, fi- and you know, figure out what it is to, to suffer. And, you know, the initial attempt he makes, they follow him around with like a giant RV. And, you know, he's like... The publicity okay, team. The publicity yeah. team, <laughs> which has like some great... Well, the whole movie's stocked with Preston Sturge's uh, yeah. character actors like... Bill Demarest is great. Franklin Pangborn is great. Porter Hall. 
I'm trying to think who are the Eric Bloor. I love Eric Bloor. Oh, He's yeah. one of the yeah, yeah. Uh, the guys like manservants kind of. Yeah. Um, but obviously the big uh, draw in the movie is there's a love story between Joel McRae and, and Veronica Lake. The She's beautiful Veronica Lake. Who, never who better. I feel people don't talk about how funny she is. She's hilarious. Because I just think of her as the sex symbol. I watch this movie and I go, my God, her timing is hilarious. Well, so considering funny. that yeah. they did not like each other at all, oh. Joel McRae did, oh, said he would never work with her again. Yeah. They are incredible. You would yeah, never, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. never know that because she is incredibly funny. But I, you got it. It's Sturgis. Sturgis is one yeah. of the great writers yeah. ever. Yeah. And the man can turn a phrase like nobody's business. So yeah. there's just so many great bits, so many great jokes, and the movie overall is such an incredible uh, tale, uh, just an adventure, if you will, but also a commentary and. It's it's just remarkable. Uh, highly recommended. I, I don't want to go on too much about it. Yeah, it's hard not to because it's it's kind of like Sunset Boulevard. That if somebody happened to be listening who hadn't seen it, just trust us. Yeah. This will be one of those defining oh, yeah. movies in it your is. in your uh, it's funny. history. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you how I saw it for the first time when I was nineteen. The first script I ever wrote was The Dark Backward. Speaking mm-hmm. of The Dark oh, Backward. Nice. And the original ending for The Dark Backward was a very down ending. Mm. I mean, it's a pretty dark movie to begin with, yeah. but yeah. it's meant to be kind of funny uh, in a dark way. Yeah. But the original ending was very down. The the, the character that uh, Judd Nelson plays goes through this whole sort of experience. And then in the original draft, it he it ended without any change right. to his, perce- his worldview. And so the producer... Brad Wyman, who was also a young guy, uh, he was working for Elliot Kastner at the time. That's how I met Elliot. Yeah. And Brad and, and Brad's producing partner at the time, Cassie and Elwes, they were both working for Elliot. That's how I got my first movie made, and Elliot financed it. Elliot did not want to make The Dark Backward. But at the time... <laughs> I was going to say, if yeah. he didn't like Long Goodbye. <laughs> no. But at the time that Brad and I were first starting to uh, team up, he said, you have to give the character that Judd plays, his character, his name is Marty Malt, you have to give him some acknowledgement of what he's experienced. Uh, And I thought, no, it's got to be really just a bummer ending. Mm -hmm. He said, tell you what, have you ever seen Sullivan's Travels? And I had never seen it at that point. He said, before you dig your heels in, let's watch Sullivan's Travels, right? So we watched Sullivan's Travels and that third act and then that ending and the whole sort of philosophy of what he learns as a result of that experience completely transformed me. And I said to Brad, you're absolutely right. I have to rewrite the ending of The Dark Backward and give him something from this experience. And that movie changed me in that way. That's so, so. cool. That's well, and so it's cool. and it's really also about like um, what audiences truly want in America. Yes, and I think that's you know without getting into it, it you realize like it's like yeah, this is why it, during Oscar time and certain times we can't believe why certain things do well. Yeah. it's because you've got different audiences. Yeah, New York yeah. and L.A. are very different yeah. than the middle of America. And, yeah, and the movie gets to the heart of that too, which definitely is, in a way that's just quite profound in a, in a way. I, I I don't know. Yeah, I, it's the I most took it on, profound you know? film he he ever made. I yeah. think, and a lot of his. Movies are great satirical looks at whatever, but but it's it's a masterpiece. It's a really, masterpiece. Really I amazing. agree. Uh, I just want to mention two directors here. Um, one I'll go into. I'll do both very lightly. Uh, the first one is because we're talking about Doctor Strange. I do want to mention that I think like the, I think these are both directors who are um, often mistaken for being cold. But I think Stanley Kubrick's actually one of the, the great humanists yep. to ever make films. And I think all his films are satire. Yep. Uh, you know, they are everyone, without a doubt. Lolita, I agree. Uh, Doctor Strange. They, yep. they are incredible satires. Even Shining, satirizing horror. Yep. And Jack Nicholson. Uh, but the one that I want to just give a quick shout out. This is my the next one my pick but I think it's because I'm just always kind of bummed that people don't see this side of it and I think it's because it's marketed as a thriller but Eyes Wide Shut's one of the truly 
greatest comic satires of the male ego. I agree with that. And, and sexuality I would, I would and marriage. I think Eyes Wide Shut is a profound film about love, sex, and trust in a marriage, about learning to take things day by day and either accepting or ignoring whatever unpleasant truths come along. It's also a film I cherish because it puts you in the authoritative hands of an old master with a style that flies in the face of every modern convention. It does. And you know, people put it up to this test of reality as if that oh. means anything. I know. I got email from people saying, well, you could see that there was an English sign in the window of one of the stores, no, or yeah. it wasn't really shot in, there's no street in Manhattan that's that narrow, or it doesn't have any mm -hmm, traffic. Mm -hmm. Of course there isn't. You know, I've got news for them. Rear window wasn't shot in a real city Exactly. Either. I mean, the exactly. whole point is that you elevate the material mm -hmm. with your style mm -hmm. into something special. Otherwise, just go out and, and visit New York if that's what exactly, you want to see. Exactly, exactly. And there are all kinds of clues in the film as to that, mm -hmm. in a way. Um, because you really take a journey inside Tom Cruise's mind, in mm -hmm. a way in this wonderful sense of uh, sexuality and guilt and uh, uh, unpleasant discoveries and uh, the journey the marriage has to take, mm -hmm. all building mm -hmm. up to the last line, which is a beauty. Yes, it is. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's really funny. And, the and I think what happened to a lot of us, because Stanley didn't get to live to see his movie come out, I feel like some, some stuff gets lost in translation in that first viewing. I know for me, having been a huge Kubrick fan, went into the theater and I was like, whoa. I, I didn't know. It kind of tied me up in knots and yeah. I didn't know what to think. I knew I like was reacting positively yeah. to some of the weird sex and yeah. eroticism and just strangeness, but there's something lost. And it wasn't until I saw it a second time where I realized how funny it was, how basically it's this guy who's basically, re you know, he hears some dark secret of his wife admitting her fantasies and then basically he can't handle it. Helen went to the movies with her friend and you and I made love. And we made plans about our future. And we talked about Helena. And yet, at no time was he ever out of my mind. And I thought if he wanted me, even if it was only for one night, I was ready to give up everything. You, Helena, my whole fucking future, everything. So he reinvents himself as like, you know, a giant phallus, yeah. imagining everyone wants him and everyone yeah. wants to fuck him. This whole, there's a whole paranoid fantasy just around how sexually yeah. uh, attractive he is yeah. and then casting Tom Cruise as genius. Uh, but it just feels to me like one of the best films ever made about the male psyche. And 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 it just, it's one one thing I just kind of, I want to put that in people's minds so if they rewatch it, yeah, that know movie, that you can laugh. Yeah, that movie know? gets a bad rap. Yeah, no, and, I, and yeah. I think it's because they don't understand it can yeah, be funny. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I don't think you should ever see a Kubrick movie only one time. Yeah, that's You're true. not even seeing it until you yeah, see it twice, and then you start to see it. It's I think. so true, and you're right. Every movie of his, in some way or another, is a satire. His, I think what happens is his delivery. Yeah. So the films he makes, the style, is cold. Yeah. But So people think his he's cold. But, 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 but what cold, it really but, is, is it's dry. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, it's, and it's always got these layers yeah. of humanity. You go, I you, mean, Lolita's another great one. I agree. It's just so but you know what people don't people don't 
talk about as being a funny movie, but I think it's hilarious is Barry Lyndon. Oh, yeah. It's you're right. Barry no, Lyndon yeah. is hilarious. Oh, yeah. And that's a, you're totally right, because that would be another one on a first view. Yeah. You, would, you would think you that's, need to take seriously. Exactly. Yes. No, that's you know? right. And in trying to, and in thinking you have to take it seriously, it could come off as dry, boring. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious. Yeah. No, you're um, totally right. So I, I paired these two guys just for this reason. That's I, I wanted to. I wasn't sure which one I was going to pick, but uh, so Eyes Wide Shut's, yeah, I think, great. But another director who <laughs> definitely has a bad rap, uh, he shouldn't talk in public, that's Lars von Trier. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to even say By one way, movie, but it might just be Lars von Trier. <laughs> von, Lars von Trier is brilliant. I, I think he's one of the great filmmakers of this, I of this period. I, I, I would say if I had to pick one Ameri- current American director, say he's like one of the key satirists, I'd probably say like Harmony Corinne, weirdly enough, sure. has kind of stumbled into sure, it. I would say. Uh, right. Especially with Spring Breakers. You girls is different from the rest. I knew y'all special from the moment I saw you. It's in your eyes. It's written on your faces. I want to make you happy. I want us all to fall in love. Let's cause some trouble now. Live life to the fullest. Spring break, spring break forever. <laughs> but uh, there's something about Von Trier, and because it's hard to like pin it to one movie, but I think if I look at The Idiots, and it's one of the harder films to get here, obviously it's the birth of Dogma 95. So I think there's multiple satires going on here, but uh, what you have Festin, which is just one of the best films ever made by uh, by one of his filmmaking partners about the family, satirizing the family, but The Idiots is obviously a pretty broad satire on uh, Danish culture, the intellectualism yeah, yeah. of these European cultures that yeah. are kind of, uh, and so it's basically about a group and it's made using Dogma 95 I think he's actually satirizing filmmaking sure uh, Hollywood cinema and what makes successful Mm -hmm. movies you know the emotional life is very explosive in all of them which I think is because you have nothing else to tell the story than the actors you have nothing else to to use when, when you want to express feelings you don't have the music to make the crescendo you have to make them faint or puke, or fight, something to express whatever you wanted to get out. We didn't expect anything when we sat down there in 1995. We wanted to do four films in another way. We wanted to have a brotherhood. It was a kind of protest against several things. But now when it suddenly became a wave, I don't know why it became a wave. Uh, Why why should we sit there and be being judges? Estonia or some of these uh, countries, they also suddenly can make films, you know, because if that's a film, you know, then we can make films too. I think that's great. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah, instead of thinking, oh, if it doesn't look like Star Wars, then we can't make a film and then, you know, if that is the only thing that comes out of these rules, I think it's fantastic. Uh, so basically, it's about a group of people, kind of like a cult almost, who decide to uh, act like idiots. The tagline is a film by idiots about idiots for idiots. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like, it kind of reminds me of the spirit of your uh, of your film in the sense of like, you know, your, your newest film. Uh, director's cut in that sense that it's being made in such a subversive way. It's almost a challenge to people, you know? Well, I, I, I'm flattered and honored that you would put uh, <laughs> Lars von Trier's The Idiots and me in the same breath. So but, thank you. But it's, yeah, so it's in Copenhagen. It's about a group who basically go into public and they the only rule of what they do is to act like complete idiots, morons. And it's super, 
super offensive. Of course, if you go into this like politically correct and go, oh my god, you know, the, I mean, even the in the word retarded and quote marks, that's that's what the behavior is. Yeah. It's almost like a cult that would do, do like psychotherapy where you're acting out, but they yeah. they have to stay in the character and they have to push it as far as they can. And everyone's there for the same reason. They have their weird orgies. They're just running around like maniacs, and because this is shot on a small digital camera and meant to look like shit, like that's the whole yeah. point of Dogma is to make it look terrible. And through that, it feels totally alive. And it's part of his trilogy where he, you know, um, where he has like an innocent wo- woman sure. character who kind of re- remains unchanged through the events, just like um, what's the not dancer, but uh, Breaking, Breaking the, the Waves, waves which yeah. is a great film. Great but film. this is a lot more subversive and yeah. just kind of insane. Uh, and so they they find a girl, a woman who's very innocent and not social, and just sitting at a cafe, and they basically kind of pull her into their culture. And so you're watching the movie through her very much shocked gaze because she doesn't know they're they're acting. She yeah. doesn't know this is uh, them kind of fucking with people, and it yeah. and it just creates a really interesting tension. I feel like people are very aware of his last few films mm-hmm. and the controversies around him, which mm-hmm. are all just coming from a, a total place of misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. This is a guy with a very dark sense of humor who suffers really bad depression, and when he talks, he says stupid shit. Of course, and it's very easy to. It, it only takes to me looking at the work of artists like this to kind of go, oh yeah, you, you don't need to take that seriously. No. Look at what he's explored. It was clear to see was that they loved, you know, to spaz about, as mm. we call it. They were crazy. They they really loved it. They they uh, they hated the days where we should do scenes where they didn't do it. Mm. It was really, it was great fun, and I was so jealous because I, well, I had to film it and kind of control the whole thing. So I had, I really had problems with jealousy on that film. I was sometimes wondering whether. You meant it as a serious film, or maybe also kind of a bit pulling, pulling the leg of the viewers, um, inviting them to take it seriously and uh, and play with their serious expectations. Yes, but um, no, I, <laughs> I can only say I took it very. I I I I don't think I've done anything in my life that wasn't serious. No, it might look like a joke, <laughs> but so does life. Yeah, he's exploring his own problems. Yeah, Yeah, look at the work. And so I kind of feel bad for him that, and I think it's been hurting him the last few years. But this is a film worth tracking down really hard. Still no DVD release in this country. I've seen it partially because it's hard. It's not, I mean, I was thinking, at least I could rewatch it on YouTube or something, not even on there. There's also a great making of documentary where you really see. Just, just how subversive the guy is like yeah. he just he'll just go to he just wants to he comes up with an idea kind of like a way where you're talking about pen it's about the concept I yeah. think and he has to put, make sure that the concept is seen through sure. to completion yeah. to, to his films but I think it's really funny I think it's really strange um, and where, where Festin's definitely the better movie Festin's a great movie this is just almost more interesting and subversive sure. and so you know if you can track it down there must be a European DVD I'm of sure, sure. Yeah. but um, a crazy movie but Crazy, great but artist, great, great artist, great yeah. movie. I think he's a brilliant filmmaker. Yeah, I can't wait for a new one. The yeah, the, the one that too. had walkouts at Cannes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I'm up. You're okay. up, Adam. Uh, here's a classic uh, satire on media. Okay. That I would say is more of a prophecy than oh. anything. Okay. And that is the great Patty Chayefsky's network. Nice. Oh yeah. And now the distinguished television news commentator, Mr. Howard Beale. Ladies and gentlemen. I would like at this moment to announce that I will be retiring from this program in two weeks' time because of poor ratings. Since this show was the only thing I had going for me in my life, I have decided to kill myself. I'm going to blow my brains out right on this program a week from today. What the hell's going on? 
Prepare yourself for a perfectly outrageous motion picture. Howard Beale went up there last night and said what every American feels, that he's tired of all the bull... sakes, Diana, we're talking about putting a manifestly irresponsible man on national television. I am not putting Howard back on the air. It's not your show anymore, Max. It's mine. I got a feeling I'm being made. You are. Uh, for those who don't know, directed by Sidney Lumet. Yeah. And so for people who He gets don't... the most love of anyone on our show, I think. We are... right? I feel like we every couple him. months there's a great Sidney Lumet film to re-talk about. He's you so know? good. He's so good. Yeah, we talked about Pawn Broker, Prince of the City, a yeah. whole bunch of them. You He's know. great. So for yeah. those who don't know uh, Network, I highly recommend that you see it. It's For in for the year that it came out, what was it, probably 76, Six? probably? Yeah. Yeah. Again, William Holden, right? Yeah, He's William Holden, who's brilliant yeah. in it. Peter Finch is great. Faye Dunaway is mm-hmm. phenomenal. Mm. Yeah. In that role, and and uh, Robert Duvall is great. Uh, anyway, it's about a failing network that is at the bottom of the ratings in all categories, and as was as had been up to that point, very common. I mean, was mm. was not not common. What's the word I'm looking for? It was uh, um, just understood to be a reality. News divisions never had to answer to for, uh, sponsors, to, and, to sponsors uh, and, and never had to worry about profits. Mm. News divisions were always about the integrity of the journalism. And uh, no matter what other divisions uh, were, uh, d- you know, uh, doing and mm. having to answer to sponsors and, and profits, news division was always left alone. But this network realizes that they could, they can utilize the news in a in a way that hasn't been done before. And what's the catalyst for that is Peter Finch, who is a trusted Walter Cronkite-like journalist, has a mental breakdown uh, live on the air. Uh, prior to learning he's been fired and says he's going to kill himself live on television uh, in his final broadcast. Mm. And the ratings, first of all, <laughs> they, they, t- they pull him off the air. It's a scandal. Mm-hmm. You know, the, what are they going to do, the poor guy? But the ratings are so huge that you know, one thing leads to another. Little by little, the uh, uh, Faye Dunaway character uh, subverts the William Holden. William Holden's in charge yeah. of the news division, subverts his authority and makes sure that the news division can now answer to uh, the entertainment division. And so they're going to play the news for ratings from now on. And they're going to take advantage of Peter Finch's psychosis and build on that and create, uh, uh, you know, uh, sensationalistic news programming. And basically what they've predicted is exactly what's happened in the world of media today. Yeah, That is... And at the time it was done, it was seen as so outrageously satirical, it was looked at as being absurd. I know the movie was a success, yeah. and I know it was up for Oscars and things, but they, but people thought that it was so nuts yeah. that the idea that the news, the television news, the trusted news, Edward R. Murrow, Walter Cronkite, could ever be in any way compromised because of profits or ratings was ridiculous. And Patty Chayefsky wrote the most biting satire about this topic this movie is brutal and it is brutal because it abs and more now than ever because it absolutely shines a mirror now on what we live every day what we've accepted every day and it's been such a slow burn from then to now that it's not like the you know in that movie the rug is pulled out from under everybody immediately and you see the absurdity of it but the slow burn over all these decades has completely lulled people into taking this stuff for granted when it is completely ridiculous I love that movie. The death of neutrality, right? Because yes. now every host uh, is opinion. 
Yes. Which is kind of shocking. Like, yes. you know, whatever you watch, you turn on CNN, it's Don Lemon. They, they are leading with their opinion of on course. the news. And you realize, oh, well, there is, you know, I, yeah, I grew up in a country where there's only one, like three channels or two channels when I was a kid in New Zealand. And, and one of them, there was one news show and it was on at six o'clock till yeah. 630. Yeah. The entire country's watching. Yeah. And it's completely neutral. Yeah. There's not a single opinion yeah. by anyone. It's yeah. just these are the now things that happen. Now it's entirely opinion. And you can choose which uh, news to go to. Yeah. There's no fact. It's just yeah. news. It's Yeah, yeah. absolutely true. And it's all ratings and profits based. Yeah. It has nothing to do with journalistic integrity yeah. uh, now. And uh, it is a very, in light of today, it is a very brutal movie. Yeah, I, I actually, that's a good idea to rewatch that now because that's something I wouldn't have seen in 20 years. And to see it in, through today's lens, I, I might do that. That's Because yeah, no, Limit's always sharp. Too. And for, for those who haven't seen it, you might recognize the most famous line from it, which is, yeah. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah. And that sequence is chilling. Yeah. Go to a window. Yeah. Open the window. <laughs> put your head out the window. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's no, so it's... good. Now, Patty Chayefsky, obviously, is, yeah. everything he did was great. Right, yeah. But this movie is just, uh, the pinnacle of of um, yeah. of him at his best, and Sidney Lumet at his best, and yeah. all these actors are at their best. I, I think it's really a rare, rare, and and it's not even just about that. Right, it's about aging out of your relevance. You mm-hmm. know, the 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 William Holden character mm-hmm. in his relationship with uh, the Faye Dunaway character. It's about family and the, this, the, this this disintegration of family. It's about all these things. It's about, oh, and the, the Ned Beatty speech oh, that's yeah. about Ned, that there's no good guys or bad guys or Russians or Americans. It's all about DuPont chemicals and it's all about sponsorship and money and mega corporations. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multi-dollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. This stuff preceded all the stuff that's going on right now. Yep. No, Coke nice Brothers. Situation. Exactly. Dark That's dark exactly politics. what yeah, it is money. right now. Yeah. And that's that's why this movie must be enjoyed today. Brought back to theaters. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also on Filmstruck. People it is? Good. Oh, good to know. Yeah, Check you got to watch Network, everybody. Yeah. It's yeah. just, I can't overstate how good it is. Mm. No, it's amazing. Yeah. Amazing film. Excellent choice. Um, for my number one, my last film, I'm going to go with one from 1971 called Little Murders. Love it. Yes. <laughs> well, there's a lot of little people who like to start fights with big people. They, uh, they hit me, hit, and they, uh, see I'm not going to fall down. They get tired and they go away. It's hardly worth talking about. So much tension. Rush, rush, rush. My mother taught me to take dainty little steps. She'd kill me if she could see the stride on Patsy. Well, um, uh, tell me something. Don't you defend yourself? Well, I asked them not to hit my cameras. They're very good about that. It's surprising. Well, uh, why don't you fight back? I don't want to. Jesus Christ, you're not a pacifist. Daddy. An apathist. So you just stand there? Doesn't hurt. 
Getting your face beat in doesn't hurt. Not if you daydream. I daydream all through it about my work. I imagine myself standing there in the same spot, clicking off roll after roll of film, humming to myself with pleasure. I hum to myself when I work. There are times that I actually think I'm doing what I'm only dreaming I'm doing. Muggers tend to get very depressed when you hum all the while they're beating you up. It's not something I, I choose to do, mind you. It's one of those things you learn to live with. This guy's a riot. Well, uh, tell me, uh, how, how do you get into these things? You, you must do something to get the mad. Well, God damn it, you're getting me mad. Gold, Great gold, gold come back. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Bring the gold back yeah. around. So this one is even kind of hard to describe. Um, it's it's good a, choice, by the way. It's a. I, it just came out on Blu-ray. I oh, don't know great! If you know this? There's a company called Indicator in the UK. Oh, cool. And I never thought this movie would come out on Blu-ray. It's for, unfortunately region locked, so you mm. got to get. But it's stacked with extras. Great, great release. Great. So I just was rewatching some of. Or I was watching some of the extras in there. A new interview with Alan Arkin and stuff like that. So it's based on a play by Jules Pfeiffer, who also wrote Carnal Knowledge. Uh, another mm-hmm. great biting, great brilliant script. satire. Great Actually, yeah, script, yeah, you're totally right. I didn't even thought about that. Yeah. So it's it's a black comedy about. A woman who finds a nihilistic man, played by Elliot Gould, who she wants to sort of form into a, a normal person that she can sort of love and protect. And she brings him. It's But it's so crazy that the satire is so heightened. The, the whole story is so heightened because there's been a rash of like murders in the, in the city. It's set in New York. People are shooting other people, which obviously makes it very touchy and kind of relevant now. But it sort of sets up... The, the I was listening to the Jules Pfeiffer commentary with Elliot Gould, and he was talking about how he was. They kind do of a commentary on, oh. on the DVD, but that's also on the Blu-ray. Oh, great! It's great, great, really good. But he was talking about how he was kind of sending up a lot of Broadway plays, which are kind of saying things about the structure of the play. As I wrote it, was in a sense a, a send-up of the um, of the typical Broadway comedy commercial comedy uh, that, that was popular at the time, in which very often or often enough in these comedies, uh, a, a young woman or a young man would bring a stranger home, and a stranger, whether the male or the female stranger, would be a threat to the family, would threaten the values of the family. The audience would be titillated by the notion of this character who's saying all these awful things and stands for all of these awful things. And uh, that way, Broadway audiences who are nice middle-class people would get excited about all of this. And then by the end of the play, this character either reforms or gets his or her uppance. And um, at the end of the play, nothing has happened, nothing to threaten the audience. Everybody goes home happy, being a little titillated. So I designed the play and then the movie script to follow that and then give it a, a glitch which I won't give away at this point. But um, I wanted it to be the character Elliot plays, Alfred, this man who takes photographs of shit coming into this nice, normal American family. I mean, normal in a crazy, uh, screwball family sort of way, but nice people, nice family values, and shock the hell out of everybody. And uh, Patsy is the figure of normality who wants to reform him and wants him to do everything right, and he's doing everything wrong. And just as she's winning the argument, and um, and it's going to end just the way these things always did in the theater or in films, where um, he straightens out, Everybody's happy. They're going to get married and have a lot of kids, and everybody goes. And the audience leaves happily. Something happens to her, which uh, is really the introduction of the 1960s into um, theater, as it was, and film, as it was. This movie has a really incredible third act. Not even like late third act twist that I'm not going to spoil, but it turns everything on its head. And it and the last part of the movie 
is just stunning to me. Absolutely stunning. So like, I'm, I'm being very cryptic about it because, like, like I said, it's very difficult. to. They have a really great meet cute. This woman played by, what's her name? Um, Marsha Rod is the actress's mm. name. Um, let me back up. So it's an off-Broadway, it, there was an off-Broadway version directed by Alan Arkin. He ends up directing the movie. Uh, he's in the movie. But Elliot Gould played it, I think, on Broadway. I'm not sure. And then uh, Vincent Gardenia and, oh, shit, I'm forgetting who was in the Broadway version, who wasn't. doesn't matter. But it's got an incredible cast. Vincent Gardenia plays Marsha Rod's father. I think Elizabeth Wilson is the mom. And they have just this incredibly strange family. Vincent Gardenia, uh, who was the cop in Death Wish. Am I thinking the right actor? Uh, Vincent Gardenia uh, uh, was, um, he, you'd, people who would probably know him best from Little Shop of Horrors. Ah. Mm-hmm. He plays Mar- Rick Moranis' boss, who go. owns the flower shop. Mm. That's, that's where people probably mostly would recognize mm. him That's from. actually perfect. Yeah, so he's a really great actor, a New York actor, who can play this kind of absurdist comedy in a way that you wouldn't even expect. But he's perfect. He's so perfect. Anyway, I can't summarize this movie properly. I'm not going to be able to do it justice. But uh, your cohort, Larry Karaszewski, at Trailers from Hell, has a great Trailers from Hell. I may play a little clip of it right. because he's a big fan, too. Gould gets nominated for an Oscar, gets the cover of Time magazine, and is so hot, he decides to produce his own films. He hooks up with Jack Brodsky, and the first film their company makes is Little Murders based on a play that Jules Pfeiffer wrote in the aftermath of the JFK and Oswald assassinations. Pfeiffer said he felt that America was having an unacknowledged nervous breakdown. The play and film are about the horrible things that humans are capable of accepting as normal. There are 345 unsolved murders in the show, but the real little murders that Pfeiffer is talking about are the murders of our everyday life, the murder of safety and our sense of security. And did I mention that this is a comedy? It's very bleak, but very funny. But it's just this one of these movies where you get to the end of it and it just kind of stays with you. It just kind of sits with you. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so... And you know, it, one thing that strikes me about that movie too, for one, Alan Arkin's a great director. Really is. Which is a shame he didn't direct more movies. I agree. And two, it's got that weird David Lynch vibe about it a lot in that movie. I mean, that movie almost has a Lynchian tone. So if people are into that, it's definitely worth checking out. That's a good Because they might, they might appreciate that. Because it's very awkward, left of center, humor, very weird. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole idea that Gould is like a nihilist. He's become a guy who just can't feel any, anything anymore. And he just takes pictures of... Shit. Yeah. Is what he said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and she's trying to get him to a place where he can feel again. And I, I'm not going to give away anymore. Yeah. But but just watch this movie. I can't recommend it. It's exact. I mean, I don't like to recommend people watch things on YouTube. But if you if the, you will not watch this movie any other way, I guess you could watch it that way. But but definitely the indicator blue way is the way to go. Get yourself a multi region player and check that out. It's incredible, incredible movie. Uh, well, I have I have a Broadway connection, right. <laughs> uh, and I don't. We don't usually like bite off like the big movies. Uh, sometimes we avoid it for more obscure things. But because I hadn't seen this since the film class twenty years ago, and I had a beautiful Criterion sitting on my shelf, I think it's one of the greatest made movies of all time. Uh, but it's also definitely the most biting satire I've seen, and that sweet smell of success. Oh my God! One of the great yeah. movies of all time. Alexander Absolutely. McKendrick, who's also just one of the great comedy directors of all time. Uh, the stuff he did with Ailing and uh, Man in the White Suit. 
Lady Killer. His, this movie comes almost out of left field from that. Uh, Burt Lancaster is a producer on this, and it tells you a lot about him. He, he, he continues to be one of my favorite actors because of the kind of choices he made. Oh, the Swimmer, he, he we give some, a lot of love oh, to The, the swimmer, swimmer. is brilliant, you know, and he produced that. And, and exactly. He's really taking a bold risks. producer, yeah. Because this is an ugly, yeah. ugly human he plays and, in this movie. And think about what movie stars today would allow themselves mm-hmm. to be so unlikable. Nobody today would. Mm-mm. Oh, yeah, J.J. Hunsecker. Burt Lancaster as J.J. Hunsecker, world-famed columnist whose gossip is gospel to 60 million readers. Tony Curtis as Sidney Falco, the kid who had ideas about taking over. But we happen to know I'm your star pupil because I reflect back to you your own talent. I'd hate to take a bite of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. (laughs) Don't turn your back on him. You might find a knife in it. This is their story and that of the big shots and big names who worship the sweet smell of success. Along Broadway, throughout Hollywood, down Wall Street, on Capitol Hill, sweet smell of success. We're friends, Holly. We go as far back as when you were a fresh kid congressman, don't we? Why is it that everything you say sounds like a threat? Maybe it's a mannerism, because I don't threaten friends. But why furnish your enemies with ammunition? And here you are, out in the open, where any hep person knows that this one is toting that one around for you. Yeah, uh, wow. one of his great performances. Yeah, yeah and Holy and I think shit. also Tony. I think there's a. I think oh, Tony, Tony Curtis's career. My favorite Tony Curtis without a doubt. Without question. Not even close. And yeah. I think the problem with Tony Curtis is as he as he went in his career, I think people maybe thought there's an element to maybe camp, and maybe there was as he went. Like you watch sure. Manitou or something. Sure. And, but when you watch uh, this film, you're yeah. watching a guy who's a beautiful uh, timing is fantastic. It, he's he's literally the dog who's circling the bone, waiting for the alpha dog to finish yeah. with the bone, and that's. That's the roles they're playing together, yeah. and they're, they're two of the. I, I think this is a movie that I'm, I'm really hoping that somebody hasn't seen, but they've heard about it for a million years and just have never bothered to watch it, thinking ah, it's going to be old. This oh movie is God. so biting. It's so. It's more. It's more biting and more shocking and more uh, brutal than anything made today. Yeah, it's shot by James Wong Ho. Beautiful. And shot. the camera work feels like, and it's partially the Criterion release, I felt like I was standing with them in yeah. New York City. Yeah. The, the way he gets so close yeah. and the camera moves and it's incredibly fluid movie. Uh, so it's, it's what, what is the year, 57. So it's set in a world that I didn't really, I don't, you don't need, this is the thing about a great satire is I started to create different illusions than the one it's giving me. It's about a guy who, uh, you know, Basically, is a what? What do you call that? He's a social. Uh, you He's know, like a gossip columnist, but but at a time when they had they real had power, the most power of mm-hmm. anybody in media. So it's it's taking off on Walter Winchell, I yes, think. Yeah, right? Winchell, exactly. and that's what Hennessecker is. But w- uh, the one that's interesting is uh, uh, what Curtis is. Sidney Falco. Yeah, he's Great basically kind of a publicity rep yes. to try, and his job is to try to get people mentioned in this yeah. column because because a mention by. Can make a career, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. If you're mentioned in in the in his column, it will make your career. Or if you're negatively reflected in the column, yeah. it will destroy your career. And and he knows he's got that power, Burt Lancaster, and everybody else knows it too. Yeah, and Sydney is. I think it's Sydney Falco is the yeah. character that yeah. uh, he's playing, and he's you know just desperate. Sydney is a great salesman. He'd sell anything to get there. Just ask his girl. 
Sidney, I don't do this sort of thing. What sort of thing? This sort of thing. You need him for a favor, don't you? Well, so do I. I need his column tonight. He, his apartment is inside his office. Yeah. He had, you know, he's and he's really a good-looking guy, and you know, he's like, you know, he's like got a woman in every kind of part of town. But he's also, it's a pretty sleazy character that he's playing, and and mm-hmm. just just zero scruples in he's these guys. Zero. And he's and the basically the story is very simple, and that's what's kind of fun about it. Uh, the story is simply that Burt Lancaster has given uh, cut Sydney out of his column for the last few days because he asked him to do a job, which was to smear or uh, basically break up his sister, younger sister's uh, relationship with a jazz musician that he. Yeah. Didn't, a really didn't care for and and that's one of the interesting things about the movie there is an element to this film that's it's taught and another great satirist of recent years that we haven't talked about is Todd Solondz who uh, I especially think when he first started like happiness the first couple oh, movies yeah. are just really great did you ever see had, Fear Anxiety and Depression oh man oh no I didn't see that is that yeah, his first? Very first oh I don't think I ever yeah, saw that one it's great it's you know, more he, unabashedly Woody Allen than yeah, yeah, that's true. but it's still him it's but still that him. tone in his movies is very much in this character between Burt Lancaster and, and his sister there's this very incestual vibe that's and what's great about movies that don't ever explicitly tell you what that was what that relationship was it makes you just go all the darker with your thoughts it could just be a protective older brother trying to control his uh his sister but there feels to be more there it feels that he's and you never see him with a woman so you start to wonder if this is his obsession is his younger sister and and you get the feeling sydney sees that and sydney sees people's weaknesses really well and he sees where to exploit because he's the one who has to be active in this world but so the story is basically that but what it starts opening up and I think again why I kind of said the start of the show why that satire just seems so relevant is my take watching this movie the relation it was just so fast it was like okay this is like Trumpism how a guy uses the media you've got Sidney Falco is basically Cohen yeah. is the lawyer is the yeah. fixer yeah. go and do these things for me and then you see how their loyalties are just so thin, so thin. you're gonna you're gonna have all my biggest secrets you're gonna do all these jobs for me but as soon as you cross me or challenge me you're gone you're yeah. dead to me yeah. and I will turn on you in a dime and watching even though this is clearly not what it's written for but the power of myth in a way to watch a movie and then project all the shit that's on the news right now yeah. directly into a narrative about New Yorkers and this is all about that that yeah. basically how all these guys are mobsters at, yeah. at their core it doesn't sure. matter what they're and it's absolutely fascinating to me watching it through that prism and I'm sure somebody else will watch it and have a totally different prism yeah. but I think the point is it feels incredibly relevant and it might be my favorite dialogue Sydney. Conjugate me a verb, for instance, to promise. You promised to break up that romance. When? You want something done, J.J., but I doubt if you yourself know what's involved. I'm a schoolboy. Teach me, teach me. Why don't you break it up yourself? You know you could do it in a couple minutes flat. At this late date, you need explanations? Susie's all I've got. Now she's growing up, I want my relationship with her to remain at least at par. I don't intend to do anything to antagonize her if I don't have to. Be warned, son, I'll have to blitz you. Frankly, J.J., I don't think you got the cards to blitz me. I don't? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think so. I'll listen for one more minute. About a year ago, I did you a certain favor. It was a thing, well, I never did such a dirty thing in my life. All right, all right, it's forgotten, forget it. Which brings us up to five weeks ago. Sydney, I got a nasty little problem here. Do so and so and I'll appreciate it. Did I say no? Was I fussy? Look, I'm the first to admit it didn't gel as fast as we'd like. Well, why all of a sudden can't I get you on the phone? And why, as of this date, am I frozen out of the column? You finished? No, let me finish, J.J. I don't like this job. That boy is dumb on matinee days only. Otherwise, he's got a head. And Susan, like you said, is growing up two heads. What I mean, we got a slippery, dangerous problem here. Not we, Sydney. You. 
Correct me if I'm wrong, J.J., we. Because if I'm going to go out on a limb for you, you got to know what's involved. My right hand hasn't seen my left hand in 30 years. I'll do it, J.J., don't get me wrong. In for a penny, in for a pound, I'll go through with it. But stop beating me on the head. Let me make a living. Sidney, what you promised, do it. Don't finagle around. It's later than you think. Excuse me, J.J., it's later than you think that boy proposed to her. Susie told you that? Uh-huh. What was her answer? She'll discuss it with you at breakfast. That means you've got a plan. Can you deliver? Tonight. Before you go to bed. Cat's in a bag and a bag's in a river. Don't be a two-time loser, Sydney. The penalty could be severe. In oh, any movie. By the movie. way, speaking of the dialogue, I, I, I hate to name drop. Yeah, <laughs> please But do. I did one time have a conversation with Tony Curtis about this movie. Oh, oh great. Nice. Yeah. And he told me a story about the fact that Clifford Odets was in the back of the prop truck with a typewriter, and that's where the line was written, the cat's in the bag and the bag's in the river. Oh, oh. my God. In the middle of the night, he wrote yeah. it in the back of the prop truck. That's there are so many. What's the one? one of the uh, greatest lines in cinema. Ever. Oh my god! You, what's the one? It. You're dead. Go get yourself buried or something like that. <laughs> and then <laughs> the, the one I had to write down was at the end. He's like, "That fish is four days old, and I ain't buying it." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like, so if you like snappy dialogue, but oh, I, so I just think also the symbiotic relationships yeah. between a boss, you know, the person who's kind of like your boss, yeah. and what you're willing to do for yeah. them. At the cost of your soul. Yeah. I mean, this what is a really and epic. And also, what they're willing to make you do. Yeah, what they're willing to make you do for nothing, for yeah. a mention in a column. Yeah. And 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 there's one other connection I, I feel pretty strongly about the modern satire and, and and in this Trump Cohen kind of thing is it's also about men so scared of women that they need to find a way to control them. Yeah. And if they can't control them, they're terrified of what will happen. And there's a, it's a terrifying scene to me watching it now, uh, but so apt to that world and the, all the stories we keep hearing about our leaders, uh, not just those leaders, but all leaders going yeah. back to Clinton, is the way that somebody's basically pimping a woman yeah. for a guy. And there's a scene where he's like, you know, the girl he oh, played, Tony that, Curtis is that, gonna sleep with. That seems, seems yeah. dark. And instead yeah. he has to get a favor from a columnist who's you know disgusting, brings him home and basically spends like this five minute scene talking her into why she should do this and you it's watch dark. it going that's happening right now of in fucking Washington yeah, or in, yeah. and it's happening somewhere yeah. and it's and you just realize that it's not because it's not just exploitation it's control it's like yeah. he has to control his sister you have to control these women because otherwise they what will happen yeah, yeah. we'll have nothing left yeah. so I, I think on that level it's really ahead of its time it's a smart that's a great choice and and, great and I, choice. I think I'm uh, usually we avoid these like classics but I gotta say like I think there's I think a lot of people avoid pushing play on some of these movies because they just they have a view of what it could be yeah, you know yeah. oh, if, it feels if, so fresh if people haven't seen Sweet Smell of Success you, you must see it immediately yeah yes. and network similar I think a lot of these movies they they are so timely but they're out of time too you it's know? true it's which true. is great about uh, also on Filmstruck I'm plugging the shit up and you oh, said good. and you also said there's some great extras which I haven't caught up to yet right oh yeah on the Blu-ray there's and there's probably interview some interview with McKendrick was, yeah interview with McKendrick there's a great inter- no interview with James Mangold where he talks about McKendrick and he has like McKendrick was his film teacher Cal at, Arts yeah he was Cal, Cal Arts, Arts. interesting so he, he actually had some shots of McKendrick's notes uh, and they were just these great little bullet points, like about plot. And That's about, cool. And about blocking. It was so neat. I was, I kept wanting to like pause on the notes because they were just like 
couple sentences. I'm like, oh, wow, that's really poignant. I mean, I'm no filmmaker, but I was like, if I was, I'd be all over this shit. Uh, so. uh, about 15 years ago, I, I was in a talk with somebody who had had him as a teacher. I was at my film school down in Savannah McKendrick? when I was studying. Yeah. yeah, somebody had had McKendrick, and, they, and there's one line that I've just never forgotten, because I love advice where you don't completely know what it means, but you, get, you have your interpretation. Yeah. And he said, in writing a character, or directing an actor, and coming up with their character, he said, every character should have change in their pocket and a back to the head. And the way I took that was like, if you have a little bit of change, it means you have some some things now to worry about. Like, yeah. I only have this much money, got to pay my And a back to the head, which meant something to be thinking about that's not to do with the story. Yeah. Something about like what's happening tomorrow with that character. Yeah, and if yeah. you have those two things, yeah. suddenly they're a fully three-dimensional yeah. being. That's great. And it was just one of those lines. You're like, oh, I love, and it probably could be interpreted a million different ways, but obviously a great film thinker. Uh, All right, big okay. one, big one, Adam. Like, no pressure. Number one, okay. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a couple of movies that led me up to this of one. Of course you are. You absolutely Please can. Do. Okay, so <laughs> speaking of relevant movies that are uh, are telling today, I, yeah. I almost picked A Face in the Crowd. Oh, yeah. It's a great pick. Yeah. Great Ilya pick. Kazan. Fair, yeah, Ilya mm-hmm. Kazan. Uh, I, I mean, Andy Griffith's performance mm. is so scary in that movie, mm. and that movie is as relevant today as ever. Great yeah. lead up to network. Too. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God, yeah. I almost picked Dawn of the Dead because I thought oh, that was yes. a great satire about yeah. consumerism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I almost picked Johnny Got His Gun, which mm. is a satire on war and the absurdity of war. I almost picked How to Get Ahead in Advertising, yeah. satire on the advertising And I also world. think it kind of connects to Dark Backwards Without a little question. bit. Without question. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Without the, the question. <laughs> absolutely. That's awesome. Um, I almost picked The Great Dictator. Oh, uh, yeah. Speaking yeah, of truly another political... One of the great, yeah. Great satires of yeah. all time, but the one I picked for my number one. Oh, let me tell you one other yeah. thing. I almost also picked, in terms of it's being a satire of the assassination of Domesticated Bliss, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh, you yeah. I mean? Which what an incredible. Brilliant movie. Oof, yeah. Some of the best performances I've ever seen. Yeah. But anyway. And camera work. To phenomenal. Yeah, it's just- but the movie I did pick for my number one satire, it's another Billy Wilder movie who you could argue m- most of his movies are yeah. satires I was say, as well. Yeah. It's called The Big Carnival. Oh, Ace in the Hole, baby. Also known as Ace in the oh, Hole. Yeah, okay. That's I right. was going to say, what, Big Carnival? Yeah. Same yeah, okay. movie, two different titles. Uh-huh. Beneath this sinister mountain, a man is buried alive, trapped by a cave-in. And from every part of a shocked and anxious nation, the crowds stream to watch the desperate rescue crews fighting against time, battering their way to the barrier of solid rock, while far below, a daring reporter makes his way into the treacherous, crumbling tunnel that is the only lifeline between the helpless victim and the outside world. You'll be out of here by tomorrow morning. No, I won't. I'll never reach me by tomorrow morning. You'll be out of here in 12 hours. Hang on! Kirk Douglas has his greatest role as the reporter who would do anything for a story. Jan Sterling becomes a star of the first rank as the not-so-heartbroken wife of the man buried beneath the mountain. Maybe we'll have a couple of drinks. Maybe you'll even take me out for a big evening, huh? Why don't you wash that platinum out of your hair? Phony, below-the-belt journalism, that's what it is. Not below-the-belt, right in the gut, Mr. Boot. Human interest. Nothing you've ever seen before has the tremendous human interest of Ace in the Hole. For here is a startling story of human emotions and human desires, played against the most exciting fight to save a man's life ever depicted on the screen. Now, when Smollett comes, you can give him your orders. Tell him to go in through the cliff dwelling, shore it up, and get him out fast. Not through the cliff dwelling. You can't get him out that way anymore. Okay, so this is film noir at its darkest and most nihilistic, yeah. and it is also another satire on media. 
And it is also another prophecy on media because what it's about is Kirk Douglas, who's probably, to me, Kirk Douglas is the other last movie star. Yeah, I know. So Kirk Douglas and Burt Reynolds are the only two last movie stars, right? So Kirk Douglas plays a newspaper man. It's made in the, probably in what, in 54 maybe? I'm not quite sure what year it was made. 51. 51, wow, okay. Only because I have it right here. Thank on. you. He plays a newspaper man who's been fired from every big city newspaper for being Kirk Douglas, basically, <laughs> right? Uh, and he is now stuck in a little shithole town in Albuquerque uh, and is, is writing for a paper there where nothing happens in hopes of somehow finding a scoop that's going to get some national attention and get him back in the good graces of a big city newspaper. And it's another one of those like brightly lit noir movies, which I really like yeah. that you can juxtapose the darkness of the nihilism and the brightly lit sun yeah. of the, you know, the, 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 either the West Coast. Well, you get that with Southwestern North. Southwestern I love the noir, Southwestern absolutely. North. Absolutely. Yeah. So I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, don't. But I will say it. he stumbles upon a scoop. There's a mine shaft collapse. I'll, I'll say this without giving away too much. There's a mine shaft collapse. And one of the workers is trapped at the bottom of the mine. And he and the the sort of his version of a Jimmy Olsen, like, you know, an yeah. eager young newspaper boy yeah. who's excited to be, you know, working with this big city newspaper guy. Uh, they, they come upon this scoop. Uh, and the guy who's trapped at the bottom of the mine, uh, they write a story about that this guy's trapped, the mine ex- uh, uh, collapsed, rescue efforts are underway. And the story starts to catch fire. So instead of... Just and and so you know and the and the, his young kid his young protege is like isn't this great we got a story on the front page of the paper and his line is yeah and tomorrow they'll wrap a fish in it right which means <laughs> you know the, it's irrelevant tomorrow yeah. so he's got to figure out a way to stretch the story mm-hmm. beyond today because if it's just on the front page today who cares it's got to be on the front page tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day so he bribes it gets very dark he yeah. bribes the local law enforcement and local uh, emergency responders. He bribes them all that instead of going into the mineshaft mouth to rescue the guy, which would probably take a few hours, I don't know, that they're going to dig through the top of the mountain to get down to him because it will take about seven days. Hmm. So he can milk the story now for seven days instead of just the one day. And he and they're all corrupt, and he pays them all. Oh my off. God, it sounds like a CNN story right now. It is. <laughs> it's that's repeated for the. That's what's yeah. so brilliant about yeah. this movie is that it absolutely predicts everything about media today, mm. in, from 1951. Uh, and so, in stretching the story out day after day after day, it gets more and more popular. The story across the newswire, across the country, and so this little nowheresville town in the middle of the desert suddenly becomes this instant tourist attraction and people from everywhere start flocking to this town mm-hmm. to and to this site you know like when a little kid is stuck in a yeah, well yeah. and when you see the kid eventually get pulled out of the well there's thousands of people around them cheering when the kid is pulled out of the well you see that on the news all the time mm-hmm. well this is what is you know these people are hoping for that they're going to see him get rescued and they're all going to be a part of something special and i don't want to say what happens beyond this <laughs> I've given away. I've I've said too much. <laughs> but I will tell you that if you like noir, there is you know like Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah. I was going to say it's a great double with it. It's a great yeah. double because there are very few movies that are as dark as this, yeah. and it gets really dark. Yeah. And it also deals with I mean, and he's there's the guy who's trapped in the mine shaft. Uh, he has a wife 
who the, the the relationship between Kirk Douglas and this guy's wife. I mean, it just it goes there. Yeah. I can't recommend this movie highly enough. And it's one of Billy Wilder's most underrated films. Yep. I don't I mean, listen, the movies that he's made that are his most popular films are <coughs> deserving of their popularity. Sunset Boulevard, brilliant. Double yeah. Indemnity, brilliant. All of them. Yeah. But this movie is without question as good if not better than some of those. Uh, I think it's oof, top two well, or three. But you're, you're, you're a huge apartment fan too. I love the apartment. And that's another great satire. satire. Totally. Yeah, I uh-huh. love that movie. It's yeah. great. But but as far as like great, I, I don't like it more than I like the apartment, but it is a great, great, great fucking movie. movie. Yeah. Great movie. And uh, I don't know, man. I it, It's one of those movies where afterwards, I mean, when I saw it, there, I used to see all my old movies when I was a kid growing up in Chicago. There were two revival theaters that I used to go to all the time. This is really before home video was a thing. Mm. Uh, one was called The Parkway. One was called The Varsity. And we saw a different double feature of old movies every day. Both of them had that. Mm. And so I saw this movie for the first time on a big screen. When I walked out of the movie, it, was like, it blew my mind. Was the music box around back then? Oh, yeah. Okay. I saw a lot of great movies yeah, there, yeah, too. Yeah, that's a great theater. That's where I saw... <laughs> That's where I saw Caligula. Oh, <laughs> yes. I always, tr- I always tell people my Caligula story because it's the craziest thing that happened to me. In high school, we had a history teacher, an all-boys school. No. He puts this movie on, no. and then what? he leaves for the next two hours. There's no way that that teacher knew what that he movie was. He had seen it, right? There's zero chance because yeah. he was the most strict, boring teacher he I've ever met. He thought he was putting on I, Claudius. We are a, a classroom of 16-year-old boys at a boys' school suddenly watching a woman on her wedding night being fisted by Malcolm McDowell oh using cake. God. It was one of the craziest experiences of my of my movie-going life. And we were all looking at each other like, are we, what, like, <laughs> should we leave? That's and then at, at, towards the end, he came and saw something on screen, just turned it off, and then just said something and never talked about it. There was no lesson there's no nothing of course not a single kid complaint (laughs) we all just lived with the the hustler uh vibe yeah so 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 i'm glad we could share that (laughs) but i i love the music box in fact the music box just did a couple of nights uh, of the dark backward. Oh, oh fantastic! Very nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very it was really nice. cool. Uh, well, that, this this has been more than we could have hoped for. You did so well for someone who didn't write your list before. <laughs> I think you are an honorary uh, Pure Cinema Thank host you. because you. you know Absolutely. you and Larry and guys, you, you guys come with your A game. So you. we yeah. appreciate it. Uh, and yeah, check out either of these films that you have out right now. Please, uh, you know, highly recommend it. And just thanks for coming in and uh, rapping with us. Yeah, it's, thank it's you. A total guys blast. For spending the time. This is this has been a long session and oh, man. we made it through so this I really is, appreciate it. This has been so much fun talking about movies. This is what I live for. Thank well, you guys as, so much. Uh, you, you came on Shockwaves you know, at one point I remember as soon as it ended all I was thinking is oh he'll be even better on Pure <laughs> Cinema. I got I got to nab him. <laughs> well I'm thrilled. Thank you guys so much. Yeah we had, we had a blast. Uh, and thanks to our NowPlayingNetwork.net. Thanks to our Patreon supporters. Yes. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks to the Pink Smoke. Yep. Uh, and uh, we will be back very soon. Very with, soon. Uh, well we're not going to tell you what. Yeah, keep laughing and crying with satire. Absolutely. Thanks. That was great. That was seriously fun. You made so much fun. Thanks. Shall it be? All. Oh. Let me close early today.